Wow! The famous heat seeker! Still held together with spit, bubblegum, and a prayer. Huh. Now, where's Dr. Totopolis? Feed me all night long. That's right, boy! Cause if you feed me shame I can grow up big and strong. <clears throat> Hello, Nick. Hey, Nick. You know what? I'm having my friend Nick Hayden on the show today. So I'll call you Dr. Totopolis to avoid confusing myself. Fair enough. Just don't call me Nichols. For obvious reasons. No argument here. I see my episode on Little Shop of Horrors inspired your show tune playlist today. You could say that. Anyway, I'm glad we can finally talk in private. Where is the rest of Heat, anyway? They're relaxing at the grand opening of Nessie's Brasserie. Oh yeah, that place opened. Now about the giant claw attacking the Heat Seeker. That wasn't an accident. What do you mean? After we returned to the harbor, Monique and Randy found a micro-orca taped to the side of Heat Seeker's hole. It managed to stay on? With all this rust? You would be shocked by what I get stuck to the side of this boat. But the orca was specially tuned to the frequency of... What'd you call her? Crazy Bernice. Crazy Bernice's cough. It led her right to us. <laughs> Good thing Gino's your bodyguard. When I finally win that lawsuit. Are you saying someone sicked Crazy Bernice on you all because you were getting too close to the beta site? If by someone you mean Winter, then yes. Given the weird things we've observed since he took over, I have no doubt he's up to something over there, but I can't prove it. He's covering his tracks very well. After Ozaki told me the story about following the thief who stole the blob, I went to that creature's display to examine it. I don't know what's in this space gunk scraped off the building after you return from orbit, but the sample I took matched the blob's DNA in the island's database. Maybe Winter altered the records. No, Randy didn't find tampering with the data. I guess Winter's goons returned the blob. Obviously. This is why I'm meeting Mr. Gold later today. Winter's cowboy crony? You can't trust him. I'm well aware, but... He offered me a promotion a few weeks ago. Never take an offer from Winter. It always comes with strings attached, and they usually unravel. I know, I know, but maybe I can learn something from the inside, get some evidence. And wake up next day on the beta side. Winter's a crony capitalist, but he's not a murderer. Right? Do you really want to test that theory? I don't know. I want to shut down whatever Winter's doing too. He's experimenting on these incredible creatures for profit and some of them aren't surviving. But even Monique hasn't been able to get in. That's because Winter knows what to expect from your French super spy. You won't expect that with me. Don't be so sure. Your reputation for righteous indignation precedes you. Do you have any better ideas? At the moment, no. Then maybe it's worth a shot. Maybe. Just watch yourself, Nate. I will. <gasps> I gotta get to the studio. See ya, Dr. Tatopoulos. Bye, Nate.
Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Okasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 68, Nick Hayden versus Cloverfield. Welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. Yes, Jimmy, I am aware. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about that. No, 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 no. We are not here to talk about that. But thank you for making sure that my guest got here safely today. I was a little bit worried, but I'll let him tell you all about that. He is the co-host of Derailed Trains of Thought and OC Remix's biggest fan, the world's most outgoing hermit, Nick Hayden. Hello. It was a little bit of touch and go. I come in via helicopter, which seems like a safe way to go, but the storm came Generally in. Generally speaking. Anyways, falling, screaming, a couple yeah, that, broken bones. Not for mine, but other Yeah, well, that storm yeah. did come a little bit out of yeah. nowhere, I have to say. was not expecting that today, but then I reminded myself, oh, wait a minute. Apparently, some of the kaiju around here can affect the weather. Looking at you, Mr. Ghidorah. <laughs> I got in here. Jimmy helped me a lot. He was yes. a good guy. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jimmy, for doing that. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure what I would have done. Anyway, yeah, thanks, Jimmy. And it, it was nice of you to help me uh, set that guy's uh, leg. So uh, The leg? Yeah, the, the pilot broke his leg. We had to pilot? Right there. Hopefully the EDF mutants with Ozaki will be able to clean everything up very nicely. Good. But you know, it's what's interesting though is it's funny. You seem to have done very well for yourself. I guess you're not. You don't get motion sickness, do you? No, no, not very much. Okay, no. which is, I mean, that like I said, that's a harrowing experience. It, it, yeah, for, uh, very much so. Although it's kind of funny given what you are here to talk about. <laughs> We're gonna bury the lead a little bit here, but uh, you know, Clover. Yeah, I, I hate to disappoint you, but Clover is not here on the island. Uh, well, it's he, probably for the best. I well, mean, he actually. It's weird. He got moved very recently. He was here for a while, but he got moved to the beta site all of a sudden. And the only explanation given, and I'm not 100% sure I buy this, is that Cameron Winter and the board are claiming that they've been getting a lot of complaints from tourists about feeling sick just looking at him. Oh, I, can, I can kind of see that, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's a ugly goober, I'll say that, but yeah. make you sick ugly? Eh. I don't know. I would like to got a little video on my cell phone of him, but oh, well, well, okay. Oh, as uh, as you were flying over, no, I was just hoping to. I brought my video oh, camera okay. and everything, okay. so I could show my kids and wife. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so Jimmy will take do oh, a little good. flyby. Good, good. But he can't get too close. He's been told that if he gets too close, he's going to get fined I, again. I, I, I'd rather not get another helicopter. Just so you know. Good choice, Uber Moger. Okay. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Yeah, okay. he needs. I mean, he needs to get some more money. Like all of his Uber money from the, like the last like six months got taken away in a fine because he got too close to the beta site. Oh, a few about about a few weeks ago. So, so anyway, <laughs> we need to actually get on topic. You know, that is a thing. We try to be on topic around here. <laughs> At least try. But today, you're joining me for the next installment of... America, America, 
America, America, America, America. America, I do. Yes, our season three tentpole series continues today. And yeah, we're making a big jump. We're jumping about 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's a massive jump. At least in the tentpole series, we did make some pit stops along the way. We stopped, you know, we had a couple of bonus episodes. We stopped a little bit in the seventies with Beware the Blob. We stopped a little bit in the eighties with Clash of the Titans and Little Shop of Horrors. So I made sure to get some of those in there. But as I said before, cuts had to be made. I can only do so much. But now we are at Cloverfield from two thousand eight. And I'm so very glad that I had you on for this one because it's gotten a little popular in the kaiju fandom to hate on this movie. I don't claim to be an expert in kaiju films. Most of the ones I've seen, you've shown me. But Cloverfield's one of those films when I went to see a theater, was, it was an event. And having it's an experience. Re- and just having rewatched it, I, I still really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll have to discuss why they dislike it. And yes. Yes, indeed. But I should also mention, because... I mean, what other Toku topic is there? You can't get around to talking about Cloverfield. And might be a little somber of a Toku topic, admittedly. Though hopefully a little more excited than the last time you were here. <laughs> Gorillas in captivity. Not the most exciting thing in the yeah. world, apparently. Although that dis- that Mighty Joe discussion. Whew. <laughs> 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 Burning orphans. Uh, just... But anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about the aftermath of September 11th. But more directly in connection to how the film addresses it or mm-hmm. doesn't, depending yeah. on who you talk to. But it's a very post 9-11 movie. Yes. Which we'll get into. In the meantime, though I am no longer contractually obligated <laughs> to do so, it's now time for the entertaining info dump to get everybody on the same page about this movie. <laughs> Clover is a violent and seemingly scared force of nature. How or why he came to New York City is unclear, although the characters muse that he could be an alien, an ancient sea creature, or a genetically engineered bioweapon created by the government. The kaiju's motives are unknown, but he appears to lash out in self-defense and confusion. The human-scale parasites, HSP, are smaller crustacean creatures attached to clover, presumably like fleas on a dog. They detach and rampage through the city, attacking humans. Why they do so is unexplained. Robert Rob Hawkins is an ambitious and determined young professional who has a fight with his quote-unquote girlfriend at a going-away party after they try to define their relationship because he is taking a job in Japan. Said woman is the beautiful and long-suffering Beth McIntyre, and saving her becomes the primary motivation for Rob and his friends to risk their lives. These friends include Hudson Hud Platt, a witty and down-to-earth young man who films the events of the party and the devastation that follows with a camcorder. He tries to lighten the mood while also questioning Rob's decisions. Next is his crush, the shy and quiet Marlena Diamond, who was at the wrong place at the wrong time attending Rob's party and gets caught up in the events. 
Finally, there is the kind and sympathetic girlfriend of Rob's brother, Jason, who provides moral support for the group on their quest. The film begins wholly focused on the human plotline, which is soon interrupted by the kaiju plotline, after which they run parallel. Each one develops independently of the other while clashing frequently. Interestingly, the protagonist's goal is not to defeat Clover, but to escape and survive. Clover is the problem. Throughout the film, he is attacked by the military with various weaponry, including machine guns, artillery, missiles, rockets, bombs, tanks, helicopters, and fighter jets. While at one point this seems to succeed when Clover falls against a skyscraper and it collapses on him, he lashes out from the rubble. The HSPs are shot by soldiers and clubbed or impaled with debris by the protagonist, but Marlena later explodes after being bit by one of them. In a shocking subversion, the problem isn't solved. The film ends with Clover mauling HUD in Central Park and collapsing a bridge onto Rob and Beth. Lily's fate is unknown. The implication is both Clover and the HSPs are still at large. The script by Drew Goddard is a simple, harrowing, and highly naturalistic story with a focused and straightforward goal for a small cast of characters. The film was projected to cost $30 million to make but came under budget at $25 million. One cast member claimed it would look like it cost $150 million, which is reasonable given what happens in the film. That being said, director Matt Reeves found ways to keep costs down by limiting special effects shots. Clover himself is only on screen for less than three minutes and the characters are almost never at ground zero for the main action. Things like the HSPs and Marlena's death are kept in the dark or partially hidden to maximize effectiveness. Practical props and sets were constructed, but much of the cost went to filming on location in New York, LA, and elsewhere. Overall, the film looks like a mishmash of studio blockbuster and indie film. This is a very serious and dark film with character-driven humor sprinkled throughout to help alleviate the constant tension. While as presented, it airs toward science fiction with Clover's origin shrouded in mystery, it's difficult to say for sure. This film was highly experimental because no kaiju movie had ever been made as found footage. It was entirely focused on everyman characters at the ground level, making them, and by extension the audience, feel small and claustrophobic. It's rarely been done since, making it unique. Outside the film itself, Cloverfield is known for its highly secretive production and viral marketing campaign, which paved the way for other blockbusters to do the same, especially on the internet. This film was an expansion of style for the kaiju genre because it was the first found footage entry. Thanks to that and its enigmatic promotional campaign, it helped popularize the found footage genre that hadn't seen a major release since 1998's The Blair Witch Project. Aside from the Asylum's mockbuster, Monster, which released on DVD several days before this, and some scenes in a few other movies like Shin Godzilla, this remains one of the few major found footage kaiju films. The film was made to launch J.J. Abrams' studio Bad Robot Productions after he visited Japan to promote Mission Impossible 3. He wanted to create an American monster that had as much impact as Godzilla that wasn't King Kong. 
While it was made to entertain a general movie-going audience, it appealed especially to kaiju fans and Abrams' own fans, and it also served as a cathartic story inspired by the 9-11 terrorist attacks. When released January 18, 2008, the film grossed $172.4 million on its aforementioned $25 million budget, making it a rousing success. It opened with $40.1 million, making it the best opening for a film in January until 2014. This led to two pseudo-sequels, 10 Cloverfield Lane and The Cloverfield Paradox, with a true sequel reportedly in the works. While both critics and audiences were generally positive toward it at release, it has become popular to hate on it in the kaiju fandom due to the constant shaky cam. It has a 7 out of 10 with 395,000 ratings on IMDb. There are several forces at play. The characters are constantly clashing with the unknown, as represented by the monsters, as they venture into the city. Rob is torn between love and career. Human Might, as seen with the military, is powerless before nature, as seen with Clover, assuming he is a terrestrial creature. Clover, according to creature designer Neville Page, is a frightened baby, implying he is a misunderstood victim of human fear. Rationality and irrationality frequently collide in the characters' interactions. The protagonist's upper-class lifestyles are disrupted by a sudden crisis. Voyeurism sometimes infringes on privacy with HUD's constant recording. A few themes can be mined from the film. Rob throws caution to the wind and undertakes a heroic, if arguably foolish, quest to save Beth. His friends support him through everything, including this insane undertaking. In fact, they frequently risk their lives for each other. Ultimately, people and relationships are valued above all else, with Rob and Beth confessing their love for each other at what appears to be the moment before their deaths. Now that we're on the same page, it's time to take the plunge into this film with some Toku Talk! Okay, so... Yes. Does this qualify as surviving the movie? <laughs> yes, I think... For some people, it is, a sur- it is a test of survival. Yeah, it's like a disaster movie, basically, but with a kaiju. Well, that's basically... That's what kaiju really are. If you look at the Japanese origins of kaiju yeah. they are basically walking living natural disasters which makes sense because japan is a very disaster prone yeah. country <laughs> well yeah and everyone dies in this <laughs> don't spoil well we you already spoiled us uh, that is true but one person w- might have got well away. yeah it's a little weird but that's uh, we were discussing yeah. this as as we were watching because this is actually the first time you've seen the film in a long time well, yeah right? yeah i think yeah. it's the third time i've ever seen it but it's been Probably? Despite the fact that it's Ten, it just, uh, five, eight years, probably. Yeah. yeah, despite the fact that the last line of this movie is an inside joke for you and Natasha. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've changed it because technically the last line is, I've I had, had a good I day. I had a good day. But we, we just, sometimes will just turn each other and be like, it was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> and we usually mean it, but we always know in the back of our minds, they're like, oh, wait, no, that means like everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> It's, well, actually, it's pretty. It's a pretty clever ending. All, all yeah, it, it is. It is. But the, that was the thing. It's been a little while since I've seen the uh, seen this film. So, as so we're well. working backwards today. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, I, I, okay. it wouldn't be the first time. Actually, no. the last time we were here, we worked backwards. This we don't have work. to work backwards uh, we necessarily. Can do it. It's, it works. But uh, 
one of the things I just want to point this out that dawned on me as we were watching it today is there's a lot left unexplained in this movie, yeah. which I think if you're a fan of J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot, which you are, you know, I, uh, yeah. stuff like you're a I'm a lost, if you listen to yeah, if you listen fanatic, to yeah, yes. Drill Trains or your spinoff podcast, The Weekly Hijack. You're a huge fan of Lost, so this yeah. kind of... Like, yeah, G.J. Yeah. Abrams, like, well, you know, here, there, I didn't watch much of Alias, but Lost is my thing. Yes. yes, Lost is your thing, and this was at the time of Lost. Yes. It was, like, probably, I think it was at least a couple seasons A couple in, in. I would say three, yeah, a couple seasons in. I think, yeah, I think it was probably around season three or four, That's I want to say, 2008. And so we're in the height of that sort of mystery, yeah. like, obscure sort yeah. of thing. But, like you said... Everything about the monsters not explained. It basically, yeah, there's very little explained. The, the scientists here still don't know a whole lot about Clover. There's this prevailing theory that he's actually a juvenile. Yeah, which means as big as he is, he could get bigger. And hey. apparently, according to the to Cloverfield paradox, that's true. I, I, we won't mention Cloverfield the, the quote unquote sequels to this are weird. Yeah, I don't know the director. Anyways, yeah. Yes, Jimmy, I know. Paradox is a bad episode of Doctor Who. But it's interesting. The movie really is. It's one thing I've always enjoyed about it is that it's very much these, how many people are basically four, it's five four, people. Four it, from it, most it, of five. Well, it starts with it, five. There's technically a fifth, the but one person dies. Pretty early on. <laughs> but it's really just very, very focused on their experience of this thing that they know nothing about. It is incredibly focused on this particular group of characters and what they know. There's no cutting away to experts who know what's going on. We meet so-called experts, but they don't know we meet the military, either. but they don't know anything <laughs> either. I mean, there's even a line where there's where they ask one of the soldiers like, "What was it? We don't know, but or but but it's winning or something like, or something like but that." But like the the not knowing is part of the horror of the movie. Yes, I think. and I, I think. I, the unknown the, is more frightening than anything else. The way this movie's set up, I'm glad they didn't answer anything. I mean, I get completely people want to know, who want to expand the universe, who want to... Because we want no answers. But for the sake of the movie itself, I'm glad that they didn't. Yeah, I would agree with you. Because there's such a thing as over-explaining. Mm -hmm. And this is one where it tells you basically nothing. You only know what the characters know. I guess it's that difference because nowadays everything's a universe, you know, it's uh -huh. the Cloverfield universe, the Marvel universe, the Kaiju, whatever. Yeah. But as a movie, it's not a universe. No, it's four people's lives. Yeah. And it's all it is. And There's clearly bigger things going on. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with it. I mean, with, yeah, it's just there. There. Well, let's talk about the yeah. characters here a little bit. Okay. We talked about how everything's yeah. kind of mysterious. I have run into in my research, a lot of criticism of these characters. People either like these characters or they really don't. Okay, so I think I bet I could guess, but what is the reason for hating them? The nice people who don't like them just say they're not all that interesting. Okay. They're kind of, they're kind of bland, which, to which I would say, I think that's the point. They're just supposed to be regular people. Yeah. Then there are those people who think that they're just jerks, or some even go so far as to say that they're you know high class, high society kids, and the fact that they're being put through this horrendous experience, well, people enjoy watching them suffer. 
Okay, that yeah, I, don't, it, I don't understand that. Yeah, at all. There's some class envy going on. The, there. the fact that there might be bland, I can. I mean, I don't. I I tend to agree with you in the sense that they're supposed to be kind of just your everyman. I, I the what what's the word we use? Naturalism. Yeah. Of the this is idea. an incredibly naturalistic movie, and they started this off with the premise that they wanted to do a very naturalistic movie. And the thing is, that was actually a really fresh idea at the time because this we got so used to it these quote-unquote found footage movies just inundating us for mm-hmm. so long that we forgot that this wasn't always the big trend. Now, Cloverfield is not the first found no. footage movie. It's not even the first major found footage movie. That title belongs to the Blair Witch Project. This is the second but one this, I know of. I honestly think this popularized the trend. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think because, like, I remember even way back when it first came out reading some review some reviewer thinking that the first 20 minutes were just inane sort of, you know, young 20 20 drama stuff, 20 something drama, which it was, uh, it was Felicity, (laughs) which was an Abram show, (laughs) which I I can't argue, but simultaneously, I feel like that's the point. I mean, again, if you don't like the point, I don't, I don't argue. That's fine. If you think it's dumb, but I think for the sake of what they were going for, just kind of normal people's lives being, Okay. Yeah, Disrupted. They're they're they're, nor- they're New Yorkers, so they're go- they're maybe not your normal, but yeah. Well, and one of them conveniently is getting a job in Japan. Oh, I wonder but, why. Honestly, if you're affording an <laughs> apartment in Japan, if you're affording an apartment in New York, you have some sort of job that pays you good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, here's a crazy fan theory for you. Do you think Rob in this movie? Do you think his job? Because they never tell us what it is or who he's working for. You think there's like that outside chance it might have been Monster Island in 2008? You'll look into it. Good idea. But I I don't know. I, I'm kind of a sucker for these movies that try a very specific thing and go all out on it. And I feel like this movie is just very specifically decided we're going to do this naturalism. Little people underneath this giant kaiju. Yeah. And just see it from their point of view. And... It's very ground level. And, and I, and I, I very really grounded. <laughs> very grounded, very ground level. Now, I have not been an expert on kaiju. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's probably like most other movies like that. And then the monster Not entirely. Really... That I can only think of one other found footage kaiju movie whose trailer we watched oh, before yeah, that we doesn't started. Count. That doesn't count. <laughs> Hello, Asylum. <laughs> we see you, Asylum, but we don't necessarily like you. <laughs> But I mean, in some ways, the monster is—it's uh, just the force of it, nature it, it, they, with which they must contend. Yeah, <laughs> what, what a MacGuffin? Not really. I mean, but it's, it's like, not a MacGuffin. They're not looking. The girl Beth, no, she's the MacGuffin. No, I know, but I guess I use that word not because that's what it is, but it's just it's replaceable. Like, yeah, you could put a variety of different things. Mm-hmm. It's more interesting with the giant monster. Well, which we'll get into in <laughs> yeah. the Toku topic section. Let me tell you. But I, I feel like the criticisms of the characters are a little bit harsh. They, How many people are going to be like Rob and just say, screw it, I'm going to go get this girl? Yeah. You know, and they're making a big deal about the fact, like, oh, they've been friends since high school, and now they slept together. So I guess that means they like each other, but they're acting like they don't like each other. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it, then it turns into the Odyssey. We talked yeah. about that. You know, it's basically, it's basically, Rob is basically Odysseus being opposed by the gods, going through many, many obstacles to get back to the woman yeah. he loves. Yeah. You know, it, it's... It's a journey. It, yeah, it's a journey. On one hand, while it's very grounded, very okay, this, it's this is not quite true. I was going to say it's not. It's obviously it's cinematic because yeah. the footage, but it's also 
half not cinematic. It's half like home yeah. video. Oh, it's very home. I video. mean, like it feels That's like the like motif. That. But because it, it's trying to not have those sort of like cinematic moments, but it's still a guy being a hero. Yeah. Well, is he? I listened to the commentary yeah. by director Matt Reeves, yeah. and he actually said their goal was to make Rob, in his words, an unheroic hero. Yeah, I, th- I think because <laughs> he's like because he's always scared. He's always scared. He tries to do something heroic, and it doesn't quite work. No, but that's what. But I, he intends to do something heroic. No, but in the context of like home video found footage sort of thing, you don't want to see a hero in heroic sense, but you want to just see normal people doing things that. Mm-hmm. In a, if you filmed it right, would look heroic. Uh-huh. Because it, all it really is is guys saying, I love this girl. I should probably try to help her. Yeah, because <laughs> no one else will. Because no one else will. And I, I think there's something to be said about that. I would agree with you very much so. And then the other characters are all interesting. Uh, HUD. H- <laughs> HUD's your, um, your comic relief. Who you would be. Like, yeah, why are we doing this? Like, yeah, seriously, guy, we can do anything else. Yeah, he's the comic relief and also the straight man, if that makes any sense. No, he does. Okay, I'm going to bring my lost in here. So, Hurley is basically the same <laughs> character. Because Hurley is always out of his mouth, comes with the audience's thinking. And, he, and he's like, so HUD's like, no, we, we can do anything. Like, we don't, why are we doing this? Why are you going this way? You know? So, you're saying we die if we go in, you know, if we go above, we die, we go in the tunnels, we die here. I mean, that's a very kind of, Hurley-esque sort of phrase. For, sorry for you haven't seen Lost for ten years. No, it's no, it's a, it's fine. It's fine. I to, <laughs> uh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, but well, it's interesting. Is that it's funny because we're talking about how he's you're calling him the audience POV character. He is literally he is literally the POV character. Most of the movie, he's operating the camera. Yes, and he's obsessed yeah. with operating the camera. And he's obsessed <laughs> with that. Which we'll, you know, we'll get into that yeah, in a yeah, minute yeah. here, but. It dawned on me when I was doing research on here. Now, when you we they call him HUD, and we're just assuming, oh, it's short for Hudson. There's but, a symbolic exactly. name too. Yeah, There's yeah. some symbolism. Symbolism well, in video games. What is what? What does it stand it's, for? It's a HUD, a heads up display. There we go. There we go. A heads up display. Yes. Yeah. It's the character who uses the camera the most. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's a method for overlaying information. Yep. About the surroundings. So whenever you're looking at a screen on a video game, mm-hmm. so and you see all of the pertinent information that you need that, to know about. Now, a lot of video games are trying to get away from HUDs. Yeah. But if we're talking about traditional video games, it'll have a display up there. It'll say, like, map, yeah. ammo, mm-hmm. arrow, go this way. Yep. You know, that sort he's of our thing. HUD. Yeah. yeah, and he's the HUD yep. in this because he's the camera operator. Yeah. And so we get a bit of a running commentary with him. So it, it makes sense symbolically yeah. as well, you know, with him being the audience. Cause I have a feeling, yeah, like, we're going to be saying a lot of the same things. HUD is like, really? We're doing this. Yeah. I guess we're doing I this. I guess we're doing yeah. this. <laughs> and then the movie has just those common, but well done kind of monster trope where you see a little bit of it and you see more and more of them as it goes that on. That is, is, that's not true of every kaiju film. The what? best kaiju films do that. Oh, I was and, thinking like alien and stuff like that. Well, yeah. Well, and actually it's interesting that you bring that up because a uh, little clover, little, mm-hmm. Yeah. Little. I actually, someone actually figured out how long he's actually in the movie, what his total screen time is. And if people want to complain about how little screen time that Godzilla has in all of the MonsterVerse movies, you could shut up because Clover has a whopping two minutes and 37 seconds of screen time. But you know what's interesting? He has two minutes of screen time, but... Two minutes and 37 seconds. Okay, but 
He's in all the movie after the last 20 minutes, after the first 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. He, his, his presence, presence is just, felt throughout. just hangs there. Yeah. Which is what's really effective about it. Again, yeah. Again, you got to buy into the conceit of the video camera. But I think if you do, you can have a lot of fun. And if you don't get sick with the... Well, yeah, that was a that was a big thing. There were theaters that actually put up signs when the movie opened, yeah, saying, "Hey, you might get motion sickness." And there were reports. I think like a hundred and four people, the number I remember seeing, mm-hmm. saying that there were that many people who just left the theater yeah. that they couldn't I handle can, the motion sickness. Because you know what, I complain about shaking cam like back in the born, the born identity. But the thing is, it doesn't bother me as much here because. It's a different style. It's a different yeah, purpose. It's part of the aesthetic. Yeah. It makes sense here. Yeah. And it's funny that I hear, you know, hello, Michael. I know you love this movie <laughs> so much. I, I know there are people who they can't deal with the aesthetic. It's which, too, which it's fine, too much. Yeah. I think part of it, well, the reason the people have soured toward this is because found footage movies just oversaturated the market for a long time. So even though Cloverfield was one of the first to do yeah. it, one of the best examples of it, I think, considering there were so many, I think people got sick of the style. Yeah. And that's how, you know, a lot of well, a lot of film genres, yeah. they run like that. You know, they're popular for a while and then they fall out of style and then people almost hate them. But it's not a style for everyone, I don't think. It no, it, for, it's not. It works for me really well. Yeah. But and I, I don't think it, and I don't think it works for everything, but part no. of the but part of part of the the gimme, because every genre of story yeah, the or yeah, has a little bit of a has a little bit of a gimme, a motif that you have to grant it in order for it to work. Musicals, you have to go yep. along with the fact that people will just suddenly break out into song to express their feelings or move the plot oh, along. Stage plays in general, like these cardboard trees stand for real trees. I mean, yeah. you just assume. Yeah, you, you have so there's gimmies. You with play that. pretend. And, yeah, and with found footage, you and I talked about yeah. that a little bit. Is at what point because. There, this is a complaint about the yeah. movie. At what point does the move, does this film strain the credibility of the found footage motif? Because that is a comic, not just this movie, but just found yeah. footage movies in general. It's like, it makes no sense that someone would keep filming. Yeah, I bought into it most of the time, partly because HUD felt like he needed to record in case, you know, for posterity. His, his and part of the time, because we were running, he just has it on or whatever. Every once in a while, when they were getting into Beth's apartment, I'm like, guy you want to use both hands or something you know that was where i noticed it most yeah but now again, i just bought into it too well you you remember the part where he turns it on himself and says if this is the last oh, yeah. you know, the last time you see me you know or whatever you know it's like you know in case i die i'm gonna yeah you know talk to the camera they had in, originally intended on cutting yeah, okay. they tried to not cut as much as possible yeah. make it look like one continuous thing yeah now there obviously there are cuts. Yes, otherwise so, a lot of them are hidden. But then there are also there are actual jump cuts. Yes, where it's supposed to be like he stopped filming and then he started. Like he's back running up again. and then you're suddenly in another yeah. street. Yeah. They were going to do a cut before they crossed that, but then they found out that they were coming under budget, so they could build another set. They could oh. build an actual big set. So then they actually did the crossing one before they were going to cut. But they liked that actor's line delivery yeah. on that line because they made that line up to account for that. But they liked it so much they kept it and then just edited in them actually crossing. Okay, because crossing, the, going across the first time somewhat made sense. When he's coming back the other way, I'm like, a guy, you're going down and there's a monster. I, I don't know. But generally, I just bought it because I already liked the movie. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> well, well, fun fact, fun fact. If you exclude the credits, this is a remarkably short movie. It's 84 minutes. 
if you exclude the credits, mm-hmm. this movie runs 80 minutes, which was the standard length of videotapes for well, the kind of camera that they were using. Which at makes the sense time. because then they're like, we only got like two minutes left. I mean, it, it works really well that way. Mm-hmm. And and again, you wouldn't want this movie to be long. I mean, this is about as much as you can handle in this format, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, there is, I, I don't know if this is, you know, the smoothest transition to talk about this, yeah. but we probably should talk about this. This was talked about a little bit in the entertaining info dump, but one of the things that made this movie noteworthy, infamous, yes, whichever way you choose to do it, is the unorthodox ad campaign yes. for this. I remember. I remember, <laughs> I remember going to see Transformers yes. and this trailer, no fanfare, nothing. This trailer just plays. And it's the party scene, mm-hmm. and then explosions start happening, and the weird stuff that we see yeah. in the movie, you know, starts happening. And then there's no music; they don't tell you the names of the actors. They're all unknown actors anyway. Yeah, at least at the time they were. It doesn't even give you a title. Yeah, it just gives you a release date, which became a joke a little bit. It's like like the title of the movie is the release date, just one eighteen oh eight. Yeah, it was great. I mean, because you're just like. What is this? I must see this thing. Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> what the heck is it? And then there were all of these theories about what yep. it was. People, There were some people who theorized, oh, it's a new Godzilla movie. It's a secret Godzilla movie. Yep. Some people thought it's an HP, It's an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft yeah, story. Yeah, I remember that, theme, you know? that theory. Just, there was just all of these things. And then they started a viral marketing campaign, which was pretty revolutionary at the time. And there were a lot of things related to it. They started, we're going to date ourselves <laughs> yeah. a little bit here. <laughs> they had look it up kids <laughs> they had myspace pages yep for all the characters right for all of the major characters <laughs> really jimmy it seems a little familiar i don't know what you're talking about anyway <clears throat> so that stopped updating yep on the day the movie opened I kind of want to know if those pages are still up or how I, long they I, stayed I up. I guess someone saved it somewhere. Somebody, like the Wayback Machines got it. Some yeah. Place, you know. And so, and then there were all of these websites that had cryptic messages and different parts of the movie. And that just inspired people to try to unravel everything and figure it out. Like this big puzzle that they had you to know, solve. I, I guess that's, on one hand, is really clever because it's immersive advertising for a immersive movie. Like, when we started watching this, it had been so long as I have seen this, or even, you know, home videos I hadn't watched that, that or that crazy. And just, it's like, oh man, there's a whole era of videoing. Um, yeah. Well, well, like the, the director said that early YouTube, yep. I'm calling it early YouTube. Yeah. Because of, you know, this was, that commentary was probably recorded in 2007, 2008. Yeah, exactly. So they said that early YouTube was an influence on there. It's like, yeah, I can see that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's weird. I said that this movie might be 14, almost 15 years old. But other than the fact that people's phones and everything looked older. They're still recording I feel, everything. I, they're still recording. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is one of the first blockbusters that featured that social change where yeah. suddenly everyone is recording everything. What would be different now, though, I think, is that people... We have been doing that filming so long. People aesthetically try to make it look better. Yeah. Then back then, it wouldn't look as shaky and natural anymore because people would try to make it look nice. Potentially. Yeah. Potential. But they were also using an actual camera, not a phone. Yeah. Now, you know, like when 
the famous severed Statue of Liberty yeah. head rolls down the street, and people are getting out their phones and they're taking pictures. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I was like, yeah, that was like I said, I felt like one of the first times I had yep. seen something like that. Yep, nothing has changed. Some things just don't change. Yep. the phones will look fancier. Uh, they're still doing the same thing, but they're still doing the same thing. I was going to say with the ad campaign, the downside, I guess, then if they're building all these unravel the clues. And then you give a movie that doesn't give you any answers. That could yeah. make people. I, that's not yeah. Fair. It was the. It's kind of the what what did. It's gotten a little bit of a bad rep, but it's the J.J. Abrams mystery box. Yeah, yeah. Which you don't like. I I love the idea of like oh mystery, but after you play it so long, at some point you have to give an answer. Yeah. And Cloverfield as a movie standing alone, I don't think needs to. But if you're going to add all this other stuff, acting yeah, like all you of have this answers, extraneous stuff, because there was a lot of yeah. extra stuff on there. Like part of the ad campaign was kind of on you know revealing little bits of plot details, background, some world building. Oh, by the way, another plot theory had to do with quote unquote three biblical monsters huh. one from lands, uh, ones from land, sea, and air. Hmm. I didn't know yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah, that's just one of a, a whole slew of them, but. It's one of those things where it's brilliant because it did get copied to some extent, not to the extent that this like this is one of the most secretive movies ever. Yeah, yeah. You know, no one told it. Like the actors didn't know what they were auditioning for. They were getting scripts for Felicity or Alias. Yeah. To audition, they had no idea what they were getting into until they had basically been hired. The script hadn't been quite finished. They started filming literally, I think, a couple of weeks before Transformers opened. Like they were fil- they started filming in mid June. And that trailer dropped in July. Transformers <laughs> came out in July. It's very guerrilla filmmaking. Oh, they did a lot. Yeah. Oh, they were jumping back and forth between filming in new actual New York, in LA, on sets with green screens. They were jumping all all over the place, and they did do some guerrilla style yeah. filmmaking, especially when they were in New York, from what I was seeing. But the ad campaign seems brilliant at the time. The danger that you potentially run into, particularly when you run one that long, that deep, and that mysterious, is you may risk creating expectations that yes. the movie can't meet. Yeah. I'd be, I remember the trailer, too. The trailer was genius, and I think that was would have been perfect. Because trailers usually show too much, and showing just a little bit, like, I must go see. Yeah. But some of the extra stuff might build too much mystery. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like, and I wonder if some people went into this with all that hype they had built up from, like, following yeah. the viral marketing and, like, yeah. all the things. And then they go and they see it and they're like, Yeah, just, it's just four relatively regular it, guys running around and dying. And it's a big monster movie? Yeah. And everyone dies? Yeah. What? Which, which question? We had this while we were watching. It's an interesting ending because everyone dies, but there's sort of this bittersweet goodness yeah. about it, which, yeah. which I think works real well. Yeah. Matt Reeves said in his commentary, because that was that's something that gets brought up because yeah. people say, like, why did you do that ending? Because it seemed like a downer of an ending, and he actually said, no, it's not. The characters accomplished what they yeah. accomplished. The movie is not about them surviving. Whether or not they survived, or actually, he said, whether they survived or not is not important because there are some people who think they made it out. Okay. Because you don't, we don't really see them that's die. That's true. We don't not actually really. See, yeah. The camera gets buried in rubble. And then and we hear them scream their love for each yeah. other. We don't know what happened to Robin. Beth. That's true. That's true. We don't. They could have gotten away. They could have survived the rubble falling on them. It's possible. But the real conflict of this story is: Will they figure out that they love, love each, each other? other? Yeah, and that is accomplished. Yeah. So Matt Reeve said the point of the movie, the point of the story, is these two figuring out that they love each other. Mm-hmm. It's not whether or not they survive. 
Yeah. So you could make the argument that even if it took all the way up to the moment of their deaths, they figured out that they love each other. They confess their love for each other. And that's all you need. Yeah. And everything's all, I mean, the entire movement of the non-heroic hero, hero, Rob is, okay, I need to do this. I'm scared, but I need to do this. You know, it's, it's living out this. I get the, I do get a bit of an impression. This is an interesting commentary. I think that, and I think this is why some people, like I said, just didn't like these characters is they all look like they're socialites and they've had a bit of a cushy life. Well, okay. They all look like they're doing very well for themselves. Rob looks like, it sounds like Rob got a really great job and everything. And now suddenly that is all stripped away and he has to go out there and do the most harrowing thing. Harrowing for anybody. I don't care who you are. It's harrowing for anybody. But I guess the movie really is about stripping everything away. I mean, that's the whole disaster movie motif anyway. Well, yeah. And (laughs) it's also very in keeping. We'll we'll talk about this a little bit more in the Toku topic, but it's also very in keeping with classic kaiju movies it's you have these ordinary characters Mm -hmm. whose ordinary lives are completely disrupted and at points stripped down to the bare essentials by the actions of the kaiju and maybe i mean that's the thing you know maybe there's these cushy socialites i mean the problem is there's too many things they don't know what's really if you want to get all philosophical they don't know that's why people come here (laughs) they don't know you know is an unexamined life is not worth living yes quote yeah well and uh, and And suddenly they're like oh wait a second the only thing that really matters for me is... Yeah, and Matt Reeves said in his commentary that for him personally, because he, he acknowledged the 9-11 aesthetics. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that, like I said, in the Tokyo yeah. Talk. We'll talk about that more. For Matt Reeves, he said the movie is an allegory about priorities. Yeah. What's important? That. What it, is important to Rob? Well, at the start of the movie, it's having a really great job. Yeah. And getting to live in Japan. And it's going to be great. There's kaiju and superheroes and monsters and everything else there and pretty anime girls. But, you know, you know, but I'm going there because I have a job, get to yeah. live in this exotic place and have a really yeah. nice job. And clearly Beth is not happy about yeah. that. We don't get a lot of their argument. But we know she's not happy. Yep. And then Rob figures out it takes is it- Clover wrecking New York for him to realize, you know what? You know, what's really important to me? Beth is really important to me. It's an existential crisis. Yeah. Both for the whole city yeah. and for him. He, he's an unheroic hero who goes on a hero's journey. You know, the downside then, I guess, is the fact that the other characters really don't do anything. I mean, as far I mean, it's his journey. Yeah, it's his journey. Yeah, HUD is there as the witness. H- HUD's, HUD's, HUD is I there mean, as the witness. He does um, what he needs to do. Yeah, and Marlena is there to kind of... Oh, she, she's know, the love interest for HUD, but and she's, she's all, also there to... She's sort of that, like, I was in the wrong, like... I was in the wrong place but, at the wrong like, time. Like, I'm, I don't know you people. I barely know you. I'm just here because I'm friends very, with something else, someone else. She comes else. off very tra- sad because she wasn't meant to be there. She's just yeah. following along. She just... I guess she had well, no cause priorities. Because her, her story ends very tragically. But so I guess that's part a, of the tragedy. I mean, if the story... Let's just assume... Is about priorities. She doesn't have any, does she? Like she Not says, really. because she was, you know, she talked about how she was drunk every time she met them previously. She's yeah. supposed to meet these people. She's just sort of there, there and lost. She's floating through life. But she's the sort of person who'll go and beat a crazy thing. Don't off go the, along with the, cra- with no, the no, crazy. No, no, she'll, she'll save HUD with the stick yeah. and yeah. So oh, yeah, beat off the parasites. So maybe yeah. that's her. You know, again, everything's very nothing's very direct in this movie necessarily. No, and but, I think that frustrates some people. But I guess you could read in that her journey, so to speak, is just to like 
at her very heart, she's the sort of person who will stand up for someone, some random other person. For sure. Yeah. Which is, a, I mean, in the context of this movie, and it's I do, all you're going to get. I do think she genuinely cared about HUD. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like a parallel, almost foil, I guess, for Rob and Beth, where it's two characters who like each other, but they can't admit it. Now, we know that HUD got a thing for Oh, him. yeah. He makes it abundantly clear. He flat out says it. And there's the thing where he's supposed to be interviewing somebody at the party. He's like, he sees Marlene. He's like, <laughs> zooms in on her. And then he tries to go and talk to her, yeah. get her to talk. He yeah. was trying to draw her out a yeah. little bit. So that's not a secret. Yeah. And there were some deleted scenes where they flirted with each other a little more. Although I love their conversation because she makes a reference to Superman. He's and like, you he, know Superman? And he's like, and she looks at him and she says, you know who Superman is? Are you aware of Garfield? <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, since we're on that scene, what do we call the little ones? The I, they're just. I think they're just called parasites. It was a parasite. That scene in the in the subway is probably the I, from my memory watching the first time. Even this last time, one of the freakiest of the movie. Oh, good lord, yes. So and, think, and there's there's actually you haven't seen it yet. I wanted you to see it, but it didn't quite work out. But there's a scene in Gamera two very similar to this. So it makes me wonder if Bad Robot. This is one of the. I think this was the first film they launched Bad Robot. With this movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know that. And that was one of the reasons they wanted to have this. J.J. Abrams got the idea for this movie by visiting Japan to promote Mission Impossible 3. And he went to a toy store and saw all the Godzilla toys. And he's like, why doesn't America have a monster like that? And I'm like, dude, we do. His name is King Kong. Did you forget? <laughs> anyway, but he wanted to do something like that. Yeah. You know, this monster with this lasting cultural impact and, and symbolism. Yeah. So that was the genesis of this movie. But it would not surprise me, even with the the clear Godzilla inspiration, it would not surprise me if somewhere along the line somebody saw Gamera 2 because there's a scene, a couple of them actually, very similar to that one in this one where the little legions attack a subway and kill everybody on the subway and then one later on where a troop of self-defense soldiers go in and try to fight them. Okay. Then it kind of turns into aliens a little bit. So it reminded me a lot of that. And even the little parasites look very similar. They were going to be puppets at one point. They're going to yeah. be practical puppets, but the puppets weren't quite working. They work very well as they did them. Yeah. Well, and they actually said doing the special effects in this, when it's technically being done on a handicam, even if it's a $1,500 handicam, because that's what it was, it was difficult to do because they they weren't used to the special effect. Double negative was the special effects company, and they were not used to doing special effects on footage like this. Oh, but, yeah. but interestingly, they previously did the United ninety three movie. Okay, the, uh, in two thousand six, mm-hmm. so they were used to making movies like this. And for those who don't know, that was about the hijacked nine eleven aircraft, where, as far as we know. The passengers tried to fight back, and then it crashed in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they knew how to make a movie like this, but they, you know, doing the monsters and everything. It's just fascinating that they figured out how to make it work. And they had to do green screen work on this, too, yeah. a lot of it. The bridge scene was yeah, green screen. Yeah, I remember, I remember seeing that. The movie, I think, does a pretty good job of, I mean, you got the, the long well, and what makes What makes that scene you were talking about so great is that it's a case of, we see things oh, that the yeah. characters don't because he flips uh, the night, flips on the, on the night vision. Oh, yeah. And then he sees the parasites <laughs> crawling on the wall. And then he panics. And then we as the audience, we panic, but the characters 
don't know for a couple more seconds. And then we can't see on. half of what's happening either. I mean, yeah. But the, and the movie does. I mean, after the relatively long exposition, does a great job of just kind of ramping up and you know just kind of and it has a nice you know. Then you slow down at the subway, and then it ramps way up, and then we slow down yeah. a little bit with the military, and then it ramps way up. You know, it's 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 paced pretty well. Yeah, well, and there's no music in this other than until the credits, except for some diegetic music in the party scene. Yeah, which is fascinating. Fun fact: there wasn't a soundtrack made available for this, except there was a basically a mixtape album called. Rob's party list or party song list or something like that that was made available. There was just a bunch of popular music. But the crew, the filmmakers, used sound effects to kind of cue things. Mm. So you'll hear buildings kind of creak or structure kind of creak right before, say, there's a monster attack or something like that. Or in the final scene, the the use of the siren. Mm -hmm. That was actually Steven Spielberg's idea. Oh. They showed a you know an early cut of the movie to Steven Spielberg and he said Put in some sirens so it'll be like a countdown to the end of the movie. Nice. So that's how they did it to build the tension. Well, was it music? The sound effects were, yeah, they're very effective. You know, I, yeah, I, the sound mixing in this is incredible. They go into the Beth's apartment and then the, the alarm, the beeping's going on. And it's just like, yeah. oh no. Which yeah. brings another thing is that they do a very good job of doing a whole lot of discussion stuff just slightly off camera. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling Beth off the rebar. Oh, um, that's so painful to the watch. The exploding. Um, oh, poor exploding Marlena yeah. is behind a barrier. Yeah. I they mean, actually, in the special features on the Blu-ray, they actually show you how they did that. Oh, I don't know if I want to know. Uh, <laughs> it, well, it involves chocolate syrup. So, psycho. Psycho, yeah. Uh, chocolate syrup, caro syrup, and some food coloring. And then they just splattered it. And they put some bits in to make it look like squishy innards yeah (laughs) and sound effects and sound effects yeah so but it goes by so fast it barely registers but it's one of the most difficult scenes in the movie to watch yeah and again and nothing's explained we don't know why she did that we don't know if the parasites we don't even know what they are no some people thought they were supposed to be baby versions of clover but they're not then it's more like but they're called parasites so it's more like they're fleas Almost like like some sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, probably. And we don't know if the things you know poisoned her with venom, and that was the end result of the venom. We don't know if it was they had bacteria in them, and that's what the bacteria did. I even saw one theory that said, "Oh, it's like the xenomorphs from Alien," and they you know they planted eggs in her, and then the eggs hatched. I'm like, well, that was fast. I'm just saying (laughs) that was the fastest incubation ever. But, again, nothing's explained. I think, again, like you were saying, that yeah. contributes to the horror well, of that, everything. That whole scene, they're already being run around, and then they take her, they run her, and they're yeah. screaming. Oh, and there's, and, but there's foreshadowing, because we saw another guy. Yep. All burst open. Uh, again, in a scene, again, right out of the original Godzilla, yeah. where it's an infirmary with casualties mm-hmm. from what just happened. And so we saw that, and then they're all panicking. It's like, it's a bite, it's a bite, it's a bite. So they've clearly had experience with this. Yep. And again, everything happens so fast, and the panic, you know, just the camera captures it, and everyone's screaming, and it just, yeah. Be interested to, to f- know how to film it, because you have to make it look like it's not being filmed, but you got to make sure yeah. you get all well, the shots they on had, everything. The, they had to work with the cinematographers to get them to not do the... The, the normal kind of job that they would do is like, we want it to be imp- imperfect. They let a lot of the actors carry the cameras. Now, it wasn't the whole movie, but a lot of times that is actually the actor who played HUD. His name is 
DJ Miller. Mm-hmm. And so he was he was genuinely carrying the camera a lot of the time. And anytime the, there was an accident, they, you know, someone was running and they, while holding the camera, they would trip. They just keep going yeah. and they would keep it. Yeah. Because that was the feel that they were going for. Again, naturalism. They yeah. were going for that. They didn't want anything to look processed. Yeah. They wanted everything to seem as real as possible. Because that's something a lot of people take for granted is they don't realize that you know, all this talk about you know, making dialogue realistic, 99% of any dialogue in anything is how people really talk. Is it only resembles how people talk. Yes. It rings true, but it's not really true. There's very few movies that have true naturalistic dialogue. And I would say not all of it, because a lot of this is scripted. But it's, it's, it's closer. It's much closer, because there are points where it's, at, where it's improvised, and mm-hmm. that feels even more naturalistic. Which is why it probably feels a little inane to some people, because it just feels like this is just, you should repeat I hear yourself, this every day. You're repeating you know? yourself, or you're not saying anything... But I catch myself thinking sometimes because I'm a writer, like I'll say something, but I'll start like at the middle sentence and it makes no sense and no one answers. I'm like, if I wrote that in a book, it would make no sense. But in the context of just living, mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. But you would never write it. <laughs> yeah. No, not necessarily. But yeah. <laughs> so that's just one of the, I, I feel like it's un, it's unappreciated it's or it's underappreciated. Like I said, it's gotten popular to hate this movie. And I, every time I watch it, I'm sorry, Michael, I can't agree with you. I find so many things to like about it. I think yeah. it's just time has not necessarily been kind to this. Not because the movie is bad. Not because it's aged poorly. I think it's aged very well. Yeah, it really it's has. Just, there's just been so much stuff like it that people got sick of it. And see, I, I'm lucky enough that I really didn't see much besides this one as far as the found footage goes. So, Well, I've seen some more, and if I didn't see it, I heard all about yeah. it. It was very popular in horror movies. Yes, yeah, I don't watch horror because movies. Because so. it was cheap and easy to yeah. make them. And that was the thing. This was a relatively, this is a studio movie, and it was as, as experimental as it is. It's very conventional at points, too. And I think because it was such a low-risk investment, I think that's why Paramount was like, Okay, it's not going to cost a whole lot, so sure, yeah. here you go. I mean, they even released it in January. That's like the graveyard dumping ground it for is. movies you don't expect to be successful. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that it was released then it, and it was successful, I it, think, tells you a lot. It gets points for me just because, you know, it's just one of those movie exp- I just remember watching it and kind of sitting there after it was done. And then I think my brother and I watched it and then we went back to his you know, in the Taekwondo studio right next there. And we were just talking about it. Like, it was just an experience. And there's not a lot of movies I'm like, that was an experience. There's a couple of them mm-hmm. in my memory. Mm-hmm. But that's that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, for some people, it was too traumatic of an experience. Yeah, for me, it was about, it was just, it was right time, right timing in my life. And it's interesting, too, because normally, like nowadays, they complain sometimes about action scenes and stuff being like, things are just happening. We don't know what's going on. And I love the old school Spielberg where you knew where everything was. Oh, yeah. In Riz Lost Ark and the airplane scene, you're like, I know exactly where everything is and how it's coming. But this just leans into its format so much that I don't care. I like it. Yeah. Well, it owns. It owns. It it owns the motif. It, yeah. The framing device. Whether you like it or not, it's like, it, we're it, all it, in. It, it, it's all in on the style. It's all in know? on the style. And I, I really appreciate movies that are all in on a style, whether they work or not. I just, I yeah. think that's cool. Well, and the the thing that's fascinating, and I'm going to bring this up because I don't know how much longer this 
portion of the what discussion about, yeah, is go. I'm going to go. But since we're talking about the style of it, I do want to mention that it's not only the found footage style that's going into this, but according to one of the essays that I read, this is also, and this is why I'm actually secretly now glad, well, not so secretly anymore, that I jumped from the 1950s to this movie because this essayist actually argued that it embraces 1950s films. Oh, interesting. As well, yeah. Like, in what way? I guess I don't know my 50s as well. It intends to be a catharsis for trauma, which is very much what the original Godzilla was, which, again, we'll talk about more in the next segment. In this way, it's serious and unironic. Yes. When most of the time, movies like this, especially movies like this being made at this time, or, or a little bit before, like in the 90s, they would have been tongue-in-cheek. They would have been ironic. Mars Attacks, yes. for example. Very, very, very tongue-in-cheek. So here's a little quotation here, not by this essayist, but he was quoting someone else. He said, quote, Contemporary recreations of 1950s films are not trying to be craptacular. That is the actual term. Because nice. he, he opened by talking about an asylum movie. It was okay. like Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus yeah. or something like that. They are trying to be sublime, involving their audiences in the majestic, the awe inspiring, and the literally overpowering. Speaking the language of excess and hyperbole to suggest realms beyond human articulation and comprehension. Hmm. End quote. I like that's the quote. a that is a very 1950s. I've seen enough. We I went through several 1950s films on this show, mm-hmm. and they are all very they were all very self serious. Even the giant claw, <laughs> which is what makes it funny, is because it is incredibly self serious. But the special effects are terrible and destroy. <laughs> All of that. Yeah. <laughs> so the quote unquote end of irony came about because of a sensitivity to the images of destruction in cinema because of 9 11. Yeah. It seemed exploitative in, and in poor taste. Instead, it returns to the self seriousness of the 1950s. Or as another essayist that this author quoted, quote unquote, decided grimness. Oh. Yes. So here's another quotation along those lines. To the same degree that these films, through their imagery, allow the audience's masochist surrender to, or even wallowing in, one might argue, their own worst fears, they also, through their plots, converted masochist passivity into sadistic reassertion of individual, collective, and institutional control in contrast to critical accounts that highlight one of these two facets over the other it is important to see this progression from masochist submission to sadist reassertion as the dynamic that drives these films end quote so basically okay i I have understanding yeah i think i think what it's basically talking about is that so you know masochistic so you're enjoying your own fear Mm -hmm. at that point and then yeah, it becomes, yeah. So it's a sadistic reassertion of the individual, the collective. So because 1950s films were steeped in the Cold War, so all of these things were meant to be Cold War allegories, or yeah. at least influenced by the Cold War yeah, yeah. one form or another. So you know, if we have invasion of the body snatchers, oh, the the it's alien pod people, but they're really commies, yeah. and we we you know the the characters are the Americans and they're the good guys. So now it's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna beat the aliens, which means we're gonna beat the commies. Catharsis, that's of fear me, and suffering, my, sort of thing. Yeah, that would be my interpretation of what. Yeah. And I read the whole essay, so yeah. I kind of, yeah. I know the context of what he's talking about. 
And along those lines, he pointed out, and I think this is just a great motif that you see throughout this. You notice that the crazy kaiju stuff, the big grandiose events are erasing the private, more down-to-earth things with the couple before that. It's erasing all of that as if to say, quote, trauma trumps happiness. Oh, interesting. But but I will say that is kind of haunting. And the the other essay, another essay I looked at talking about this had another take on (laughs) that particular facet of it. But it is interesting to look at it through that lens. So I may yeah. have jumped from no, the 50s to this, it. but it's actually makes sense makes in sense. terms of progression. Yeah. So it's going back to the 50s because there's not a shred of irony in this. No. And again, having done those and we talked is that I think the ending they made is the, is the proper ending, though it's not a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, the true ending. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. I think it. For I don't think it would. Up. I don't think it would have necessarily rang true. Exactly. That's what I mean. If it, yeah. if, the, if we knew for sure, I think the uncertainty is what does it. It's not like we had. If you want to call them sequels, I mean, like Ten Cloverfield Lane. Spoiler warning for everyone: technically has a happier ending than this. Yeah, it's still a little bittersweet, but it's happier. Yeah, which seemed fitting for that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this movie seems like they she they get the emotional catharsis of "I love you." Mm-hmm. And the audience, I guess you want to go with this thing, gets the terror catharsis of this unstoppable thing yeah. win. No, it's not wins, at least demolishes everything I knew. Yeah, demolishes <laughs> everything I knew and kills our characters. Yeah. and I mean, he Clover literally eats the POV character. Yes. It, so I guess in a way, eats the audience? I mean, up, we yeah. are in his mouth for a hot <laughs> second. <laughs> Which is something else, yeah. And if you pay attention, I do think we technically see... Oh, rest in peace, HUD. Uh, little severed bits of HUD in that. Uh, in it, it does it goes by very, very fast, yeah. so you can't see it. Uh, the sound effects are, well. are yes. Oh. Anyways, yes, yes. Whew. Huh. Hmm. But yeah, but I think we've you've talked about this on Derail Trains of Thought. It acts as a safe environment to work out your anxieties yeah. and your fears, which I guess even what it was. A, Aristotle, we've talked about with Greek tragedies. Like, mm-hmm. you want to see these guys suffer and fail for some flaw. Now, there's no flaw here. This is a whole different sort of ball game. But that same sort of idea of catharsing. Yeah. Uh, catharsing? I don't catharsing? Think it, yeah. We just... Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did just verb that. <laughs> I can verb anything. Um, you know, little story. Uh, apparently, my wife told me, and I assume it's true, that in Portuguese... There's a verb for thing, like I thinged it. So if you don't know what, you know, so inside I picked up that thing, I thinged your brother, I guess. I don't know. That sounds kind of dirty. <laughs> well, Do okay, I need to case. bring a jet for that? That would be a no. hilarious bit of un, uh, unnecessary censorship. That... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so I can verb anything. Yeah, yeah, anything. Yes. Yes, Anyways. yes, yes quite. Anyway, <laughs> where'd that come from? It's just... Yeah, no, shut up, Jimmy. We're not talking about Big Willie Three on, uh, right now. So, uh, anyway, I, there's a lot. As usual, I over prepare for this podcast, and we still have a lot of stuff to talk about. I'll mention just some interesting things that I found out about this. Going back to you know the you know, like YouTube style, oh, yeah, early yeah. YouTube style that influenced this movie, the crossfire scene, which might be one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie, if not the most harrowing scene in the whole thing. 
which is when you get your first real good glimpse of Clover. Oh, yeah. That was actually inspired by, appropriately, given what we're going to talk about soon, footage of American troops in Afghanistan getting bombed. Oh, interesting. And he said you couldn't hardly see anything, but that was what made it terrifying. It was, it was obscured, so that yeah. made it scary. And the other interesting thing is, oh, the rats. The director said he was told those are the, quote-unquote, best rats in the business. They're the Pirates of the Caribbean rats. That's great. Gotcha. And there were multiple code names for this movie. Cloverfield was just one of them. They almost called it Gray Shot, which was the name of one of the bridges where they filmed. They also used Slusho, which is a J.J. Abrams thing. They also almost used Colossus and Monstrous. Hmm. Again, looking at you, Asylum. Looking at you, Asylum. Might have stolen that. But the name Cloverfield is actually a reference to the street that Bad Robot is located on. You know, it's interesting because it has nothing to do with the movie, yet it seems to fit as a title for some reason. Like, Yes, it does. But they weren't intending on using that. Yeah. Cloverfield Boulevard in Santa Monica, California. Interesting. That's where it came from. I guess it, it, that just ended up becoming the... It was also called Cheese. <laughs> but that, they said that, that lasted one. for a day, and then people figured it out. <laughs> but I, they did, they weren't going to call it that. It was one of the code names, because they do that a lot. Because, like, what was it? Like, Star Wars was codenamed Blue Harvest? Something like that, yeah. So, something like that. Yeah. So, there... But they decided to keep it because that ended up becoming the popular, the most popular of the code names that got out there. Yeah. So like, eh, you know, good for marketing. So they just yeah, they just went it. with it. And Clover got his name from visual effects supervisor Eric Levin. Hmm. But that he also got a few nicknames from some other people, <laughs> like Clovey. Clovey. <laughs> Clovey. Oh, an alternate, another alternate title of the the prince for the movie when they're sent to theaters. They were they were titled Bertha. Hmm. You had all kinds of fun. Yeah, they like I said, so much. You're going to be busy, Jimmy, <laughs> with your blog. And going back to the 50s connections, there were several classic monster movies that if you pay close enough attention, you'll see them. Which yeah. we I did not see them, so I didn't Yeah, I didn't either, enough. unfortunately. But the, a couple of them have been covered on the... Actually, all of them have been covered on the show. <laughs> we had them! With the giant ants and the original King Kong and one that is near and dear to both of us. Yes. Nick. The Beast. The Beast. From 20,000 fathoms. Where'd that... Why does that always happen? I don't know. Is it, I, you know, I was confused by this as Tim was the last time <laughs> he was on the show and that happened. It's something. It's, it's magic. I'm just, I'm just telling you. The acoustics here. Yeah, the acoustics, man. Yeah, it's just it's crazy. I don't know if you caught this, but did you know the Dharma Initiative logo is in this movie? No, is it? I'm not yeah. surprised, actually. I'm not surprised it's, at all. Yeah, it can be seen briefly at the start of the movie. I should have guessed. Yeah. Might want to watch it again. And you'd be like, <laughs> they, put it, <laughs> they put it everywhere back then. You're going to go on the internet now and say, like, Cloverfield is in the Lost Universe confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Just in the Sideways Universe. <laughs> so good. Also, according to some of the sources I looked at, apparently they made the Statue of Liberty head a little bigger than it really is. Oh, really? I was yeah. wondering if it was legitimately that big or not. Uh, well, some sources I said they made it 50% larger because that's how big people think it is. Okay. What you could see. I mean, because a lot of times you do the special effects to 
match how people think versus how it actually is. Yeah. Like you add sound effects of things like, yeah, it doesn't make that effect, but if you didn't do it, it'd be weird. Yeah. Like punching people. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm well aware of that. <laughs> and uh, they also got the idea uh, for the decapitated Statue of Liberty on the poster from Escape from New York. Oh. You ever seen Escape from New York? I don't think so. I, I've seen parts of it, I think. Okay. But, well, look up the poster. Yeah. You'll see a very similar one. Yeah, because there's the Statue of Liberty is on that one. Yeah, it's lying in the middle of the street. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I've seen uh, that Apes movie. I'm well aware of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that one too. Oh, <laughs> some of those other nicknames that the fans gave him. MGP. I have no idea what that stands for. Okay. Shut your dirty mouth, Jimmy. Gee whiz, I should have brought Jed in today. I'm sorry about that, Nick. Sorry, so sorry about that. And uh, another one was Darwin. Darwin. Okay. Also, I can't, I guess I can't believe someone counted this. The words, oh my God, or variations thereof are used 85 times in the movie. Wow. More, I mean, it's, they're a lot, but I didn't know that many times. Yeah, somebody counted. Someone's got nothing better to do with their lives. (laughs) guess so if you were listening to this podcast i'm sorry (laughs) i hope you have lived a happy fulfilled life since then oh and i didn't mention this on there we talked about it briefly off the air there's a manga tie-in oh yeah you mentioned that yes it's called cloverfield kishin i hope i said that right written and i'm guessing drawn by yoshiki togawa and it's a prequel takes place in japan Focuses on a Japanese high school student named Kishin, Aiba, naturally. And he somehow has a connection to the monster. I want to find this, get it in the Sekizawa library, and read it. I hope it's been translated. There's a little something for you to look up, Jimmy. All right, as much as I would love to talk about a lot of other things with this movie, we do need to move on to the Toku topic. I've gotten a lot of comments on how great MIFB sounds, and that's all thanks to Sweetwater Sound. Whether you're a podcaster, musician, or singer, Sweetwater has the gear that will make your inner audiophile squee with delight. They have the best selection from all the best brands. More importantly, their customer service is light years beyond, well, everyone else's. They offer fast and free shipping in the continental US, free tech support, three two-year warranties, and 48-month payment plans. Whatever your audio needs, Sweetwater is your one-stop shop. Visit their website, sweetwater.com, to learn more and find your next favorite audio gear. All right. I quickly found out while doing the research for this episode that anything and everything attached to September 11th is just, there's too much. Yeah. Entire libraries of books have been written about this. This is one of the most studied historical events of our lifetimes. Yeah. Actually, it probably is the most studied event of our lifetimes. There's just too much to try to wade through. Way too much. Even if you just want to focus on the aftermath. The events that led up to it, that's a quagmire yeah. unto itself, which requires you know, understanding years upon years of history. And even talking about the aftermath is a little bit of a quagmire, especially when you get into the war on terror, as we'll talk about here. So 
I ended up having to kind of tweak mm -hmm. what I wanted to do because there's just so much stuff to wade through. So what I decided to do, and I'm going to try to get through it quickly, is to just do a very bare bones rundown of what I think are pertinent events to the film, film yeah. that influenced the film. And then I want to talk about some highlights I got from a pair of essays where the scholars talked about Cloverfield, interpreted Cloverfield through the lens of 9-11. Okay. We've hinted at some of the things already before this, but I really think that's where the bulk of the discussion mm -hmm. needs to be. This film's attitude toward 9-11 or non-attitude toward 9-11, yeah. depending on how you want to look at it. Especially, but you know, given that most of the people who are listening to this are at least old enough to remember what happened, I don't feel that, and especially what happened afterward, I don't feel the need to get into all that much detail. Plus, it's a political quagmire, and I really don't, it's a yeah. hot-button issue even to this day, and I really don't want to get too much into it. But just to, you know, again, a quick rundown. This was a three-pronged attack orchestrated by Al-Qaeda terrorist leader Osama bin Laden. That was a name we heard about for years. 19 men hijacked four passenger jets, crashing two into the World Trade Center and one into the Pentagon, with a fourth one, we talked about it already, crashing in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, after the passengers attempted to overpower the hijackers. Mm. 2,750 people died that day, which is more than Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. This was compared to Pearl Harbor. This was the Pearl Harbor of our generation. Yeah. 1,500 first responders, iron workers, engineers, and other workers tirelessly dug through the rubble at Ground Zero to look for survivors. Ground Zero being where the rubble for the Trade Center Towers, yeah. the Twin Towers, were. They were hindered by two feet of soot. Mm -hmm. Two feet of soot. Let that sink in a little bit. Two feet of soot. They only found 20 survivors over the course of that. And into 2002, they moved... 108,000 truckloads of 1.8 million tons of rubble wow. by May of 2002. Some pertinent political things, historical things to keep in mind going into this movie. Because this was just, they were making this movie six years after the yeah. event. The movie came out, it was just over six years. President Bush, George W. Bush, his approval rating jumped to 86%. As Americans rallied around him and the phrase, United We Stand, Rudy Giuliani, that was a name that we heard a lot, figure that we saw a lot. He was the then mayor of New York City. He gained a very high profile thanks to this. And sometimes it was even a bigger profile than the president's. I remember people calling him America's mayor mm -hmm. when it was going on. And he was named Person of the Year by Time Magazine because of how he handled the crisis. Yeah. Patriotism was running high. New York City and its people were venerated. So were the first responders. Unfortunately, one of the consequences of this is hate crimes increased against anyone who looked Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm. Give an example of this. Quote, I hope I say this right. Balbir Singh Saudhi, a Sikh man, was shot dead on September 15th at the gas station he owned in Mesa, Arizona. Mark Anthony, what a name. Mark Anthony Stroman, a white supremacist. There's your problem right mm -hmm. there. Yes. And we're talking like a real white supremacist people, okay? Yeah. You've kind of, that term's unfortunately been watered down a little bit. I'm not going to get political, but it's been watered down a little bit. This is a real white supremacist. Killed two men and injured a third in a shooting spree beginning September 15th in Dallas, Texas. His victims, including 
Bangladeshi American rice bouillon were all targeted because they looked of Muslim descent. His motive for the killing was revenge for the 9-11 attacks. And just in case anyone wants to know, Mr. Stroman was executed for these crimes in 2011. Justice was done. There was also a lot of vandalism committed against mosques and other Muslim institutions. That increased by, this is just ridiculous, 1,600%. Wow. According to the source I looked at, yeah. The collapsed Twin Towers threw 2,500 contaminants into the air. When we saw that image. Yes. The first attack is probably the most 9-11 thing in the entire movie. Because we see a building collapse, and then we see a wall of dust come forward. Yes. We saw those images all the time during the news coverage. There were, like I said, 2,500 contaminants got thrown into the air, including carcinogens. Mm Mm-hmm. And it caused health problems for a lot of people for years after that. Rescue workers filed disability claims with 1,000 reported continued respiratory problems with 500 reporting psychological issues as far as 2004, so three Mm -hmm. years later. 18,000 people developed illnesses from the toxic dust. A couple of notable examples of that was in 2006, a New York police officer named James Madroga died and the coroner connected that to his to him helping with the cleanup. And then there was Detective Luis G. Alvarez, who died in 2019, just a couple years ago, because of colorectal cancer. And it was that was attrib- attributed to him spending three months at ground zero. Wow. And all of the and this, like I said, this is mountains of books and entire podcast series can be made yeah. about this event. There were legal cases, obviously, because for medical compensation related to all of these things. Like I said, there's just this is a pile of things. New York City was said to have had an economic loss of 82.8 to 94.8 billion dollars. And then airport security, that got nuts. That was the source of a lot of controversies for mm-hmm. a lot of years after that. And it often led to accusations of racial profiling of, of Middle Eastern people. Mm-hmm. Not here to comment on that. I'm just saying that was a thing. That was an issue that was being discussed. And also, people were talking about what felt like invasive security measures. Yeah. Basically, frisking your grandmother just Mm. just because they thought she might have been carrying something. Like, it's your grandmother. And then the often spoken about Patriot Act Mm -hmm. increased uh, increased the power of government to investigate anyone suspected of terrorism. That was considered invasions of privacy. That was a big hot-button issue. They could do things like invade a premises without a warrant. They could wiretap. It was, yeah, that was a huge deal. But the justification was that, hey, we need to increase these measures because wartime or yeah. whatever. You know, it, it's very Orwellian if you stop yeah. and think about it. You know, how, my, how many of your rights do you sacrifice for the sake of safety? Yeah. Interestingly, Al-Qaeda attempted more attacks on U.S. soil in the years that followed. Most of them, thankfully, didn't work. When they did work, they were high-profile news stories, to say the least. But one of the most far-reaching effects of 9-11 consequences was the War on Terror. Yes. Oh, boy. This began October 7th, 2001, when, for the first time, NATO invoked Article 5, which allowed for member nations to act in collective self-defense. The U.S. attacked Afghanistan in retaliation against Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda expected maybe a missile strike, so they were not prepared for full-scale war. And then that expanded 
in March 2003 as part of President Bush's doctrine of preemptive war against any he called the axis of evil. There's a term that we knew yeah. very well, but I haven't heard in a while, which was his funny little nickname for Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. invaded Iraq on suspicion that Saddam Hussein was harboring WMDs, which they were saying were being used by terrorists yeah. to commit their terrorist acts. And that, both of these things turned into quagmires. These wars really basically ended very quickly. Baghdad fell in three weeks. Yeah. But they ended up having to stay there to do mop-up. They tried to do what they did with Japan to a certain extent and try you know, with the occupation, try to reestablish a new government. It's a very different culture. It just And then they were there for a really long time. And then anytime somebody died over there, it was a big controversy. And it's just, it just, it was a mess. Yeah. It really was the Vietnam War all over again for our generation. It was ugly. Really, really ugly. But September 11th mastermind Osama bin Laden. That was another name we heard a lot for a while. He eluded U.S. forces until he was found, and I hope I say this right, in Abadadad, Pakistan, where he was killed by SEAL Team 6, May 2nd, 2011, on orders from President Obama. Mm-hmm. But troops didn't leave Afghanistan or Iraq until much more recently, and that's a controversy. That is a can of worms I am not willing to get into on this show. It is not important. Yeah. So, with all that as a little bit of a background, I now want to talk a little bit about how this film, which is very clearly influenced by it, yes. handles it. I think it is, we've already hinted at it, it is very safe to say this film is the closest thing the United States has ever produced to a Godzilla 1954. And I mean that in thematically where Godzilla, you've seen Godzilla 54. Yes. Yes. You were on for that episode. I was on for that episode. Godzilla 54 was heavily influenced by the war and in particular the nuclear bombs. Yeah, yeah exactly. Processing the... It was it was very cathartic. It was a process. It was mm-hmm. processing. And it was... Yeah, you know, this was at a time where they could finally make a movie about that after many years of censorship. So, you know, it, it, like I said, it was very cathartic, you know, dealing with the fear and the anxiety. But also there's a little bit of wish fulfillment that, in it as well. Being able to say, you know, the Japanese people being able to say, hey, we're victims mm-hmm. and to feel legitimized because of that. Now, it's still its own thing. It is the bomb reimagined, we'll say. As a monster. Yeah. Because as I've said before in previous episodes, monsters in fiction are always responses to something. And Cloverfield becomes that. There were other movies made about 9-11. There was a movie called World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. There was United 93 that we talked about. Those were about the event itself. Yeah. This was a recontextualization. Yes. This was taking that trauma, the imagery, and recontextualizing it as a monster movie. So- I found a couple of essays that talked about yes. that. And I'm going to go over some of the points that I found. I just want us to talk about yeah, that in exactly. the context of that. Because yeah. like I said, we're both old enough to remember yeah. what that was like. Mm-hmm. That whole era, which <laughs> feels very far away now it because does. of other crazy things that yeah. have happened the last few years. So one author, his name is Stone, argues that Cloverfield doesn't so much sensationalize 9-11 as much as tap into modern people's perverse excitement at images of destruction, even if they're real. Let me explain. Okay, no, yeah, I'm just thinking through what, how, what I feel about that. Okay. okay. People did recoil at those images for a while, mm-hmm. but, quote, 
in 2010, while a website as conventional as life.com points out the terrible beauty of atomic explosions, there is no real place in Western culture for an open discussion of 9-11's dark aesthetic appeal, end quote. Americans spent a hundred years being thrilled by cinematic destruction and news outlets described 9-11 as being, quote unquote, like a movie. Quote, in short, we do not halt our enjoyment of violent imagery just because it is real, end quote. The thrill doesn't preclude sorrow or sympathy, but mentioning this duality leads to vilification. That was one of his okay. arguments. Okay. Any thoughts on that so far? Yeah, I... I think there are, I, again, he, he's talking absolutes and only Seth, no. Um, <laughs> Stop triggering my producer with the prequel. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Anyways, but I do think there probably is something to be said that we do find a certain fascination with extreme destruction. You know, one of the last podcast episodes I was on, you guys came and visited me. This is exactly. the first time you guys came exactly. to visit me we here on Monster Island. With Destruction is popcorn. Exactly. And I think there... Now, I don't know how well you can transfer that universally to 9-11, but I think there probably is some sort of love-hate relationship with, say, you know, watching the images of the planes or the buildings fall. On one hand, it's horrible. Wait, no, it is completely horrible. But on the other hand, there is some sort of like, but the buildings fell. Isn't that... Exciting. Or at least, here, here, here's another example, I guess. I remember videos, phone phone videos coming in from the Japanese tsunami. And you watch all the cars being washed away in the oh, buildings. The, the 311 disaster. Yeah, yeah. And on one, you're watching it and you're like, that's horrible. Simultaneously, you're kind of watching in, like you can't turn away from a car wreck sort of thing. Yeah. And I think there is something like, you know, any any sort of massively destructive thing, whether it's natural like a volcano or a tsunami or just something man-made unfortunately like yeah there is something that we find yeah fascinating like when both in movies and unfortunately i think in real life and i think i don't think 9-11 like he said it precludes us feeling horrible about it but i do think there's the danger for some people who live in a completely digital world to see just images and not feel the relational connection the gravity the gravity of it yeah, yeah. Now, i don't think that was with 9-11 but i think the farther away you get from it yeah it's one of those things where I sometimes I look at, you know, if I'm watching an action movie. Yeah. And I stop and I think, I do sometimes sit down and I think about, I was like, I am garnering excitement out of this. Yeah. You know, seeing Arnold go around and they shoot everyone. There's this weird thrill that comes with that. But if this was actually happening in real life, I don't think it would be nearly as fun. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong if you have that separation between fantasy and fact. Yeah. But I do think, again, I don't think it's much back in 9-11 because, like, YouTube was not a thing and stuff like that. No. But, but, the, but the news played that video, and which is something that's another point's going to get brought up here. The later. news kept playing that footage constantly. Yeah, because also, oh, terrible thing. <laughs> Actually, the next point, I'll, I'll read this. Okay, read that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another quotation here, quote, perhaps the footage was screened so often because it beggared belief and therefore required multiple viewings to fully comprehend. I think that's part of it. The scholar Kathy Smith supports this theory, suggesting that repetition of the images of 9-11 signified, 
quote, a global attempt to admit its possibility and to come to terms with the act, end quote. Patricia Mellencamp, in her classic study of, quote unquote, catastrophic coverage, argues that repeated viewings of traumatic events, such as the assassination of President Kennedy Mm -hmm. or the Challenger disaster, allow us to, quote, acknowledge, then alleviate fear and pain, end quote. She draws on Sigmund Freud's, oh great, we always want to talk about Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud's essay, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, to argue that the compulsion to repeat can result in mastery over loss. Hmm. I I, I think I agree that sometimes, I think 9-11 work, Challenger, like, did that, that is that real? Is that, you know. It's that five stages of grief. Yeah, like. Because the first stage is denial. Denial. That's not real. Especially something like, a plane hitting the trade center. It does seem honestly kind of absurd. And I remember, I will never forget this. And I wonder if this was actually originally scheduled to air on TV that weekend, or if it was a decision made by the TV station to air it as maybe as a form of catharsis a little bit, but it was an eighties action movie had Chuck Norris. And I think, I want to say Lee Majors. I could be wrong on that. Fact check me on that, Jimmy. Called The Delta Force. Okay. All right. I had seen it before, and I I was a little shocked that they aired this. But do you know what The Delta Force is about? No idea. President with an airplane. (laughs) No, not the president. Get off my plane. That's a different one. No, it was literally literally about Muslim terrorists hijacking an airplane. Really? A passenger jet. Now... Not to crash it into buildings as an act of yeah. terrorism. They were holding the passengers uh, for ransom. Yeah. But it's still Muslim terrorists taking over a plane. But the catharsis, I think, that was coming from it was, here's these you know, all-American heroes who are yeah. going to go in there, and they're going to save everyone, and they're going to kill those terrorists. You yeah. know, That was the thrill. Yeah. I, yeah, I think... It'd be interesting nowadays if something, I, I don't want anything like that to happen, but we have so much video from so many different versions now, how much we would. Lee Marvin, I was wrong. Ah. Not Lee Majors, that's very different. Lee Marvin, right, right, right. Anyway, you were saying. Oh, it'd just be interesting because in 20 years, we've been even more inundated with films and YouTube and nonstop videos on our phones that I wonder how much, you know, if there is, less of a separation between or if we're less able to look at something and be like, Oh, that actually happened versus watching something like that. And be like, Oh, that's too bad. And go on with our, yeah. <laughs> well, and to tie into that, I did find a Pew statistic mm-hmm. that said 63% of people couldn't stop watching news coverage of the events mm-hmm. and a sizable majority, as they put it, 71% said they felt depressed and nearly half 49% had difficulty concentrating, and a third said they had trouble sleeping. So it's incredibly anxious, but we can't stop watching. So well, it's like we are wrecking ourselves the, doing this. It's like, it, we, again, we can't look away from the train wreck. But it hasn't, it hasn't changed the last 20 years. Now it's just doom no. scrolling. That doom scrolling. Yeah. Oh, good Lord, yes. But no, it reminds That's me. That's almost a joke. Well, it's kind of a joke, but, but it's true. It's true. For a lot of people. Yeah, for a lot of people. But it's interesting because even back, okay, I guess this would have been. Probably late 90s or well, I don't know. Somewhere in the 90s, I think. My grandparents were, lived in Wyoming and we'd go there and they'd watch the news. And my grandma always called it Dead in Denver. 
Because ten ten. there would always report. That sounds I mean, like somebody's alias in a letter to the editor yep. or a horror movie. It's a mystery. Dead Denver. <laughs> a mystery Sle- sleepless in Seattle, dead in Denver. Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the really depressing remake. It's a sequel. <laughs> 70 years later. Um, <laughs> but, no, but she always make fun of it because... I'm with him. That is a little grimdark. I'm just saying. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, but she always made fun of it because, like, we're hundreds of miles from Denver, but they always had to put whatever murder was anywhere in the, you know, anywhere on the news because that's, I guess, important. Well, and it gets gets attention. Yeah. And it's it's sensationalism. I mean, I mean, that was when it was not like it is now. Now it's. Oh, up, not but, at all. Right, that, that was when it was innocent. Kind of. <laughs> I was. don't know if fake news has ever been innocent, but sure. Here's another point from Stone that I think was worth discussing. Quote, Cloverfield is the first Hollywood movie not only to dwell on the destruction in Manhattan, but also to revel in it. It manages this feat by removing us just far enough from reality that we do not have to confront our fascination with the death and destruction wrought on 9-11. By reconfiguring the event as a science fiction monster movie, it allows us to experience the terrorist attacks as an exciting spectacle without any attendant feelings of guilt, end quote. Isn't that just generally what fiction is about? Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I'm always a little skeptical on taking something that's probably just... In, not I don't mean inspired by, but influenced by in making it into this like one-to-one thing as if there was nothing else going on in the film than just yeah processing that psychological yeah, which Freudian is, thing. Yeah, I, which is what the next essayist would spend a little bit of time talking about. So Because I think there's probably some point there, but I feel like it's like focusing on the tree and missing the rest of everything else yeah, going it's on. missing the forest. Yeah, but I, there's probably instead something. Of, okay, I'm uh, a New Yorker. Of, maybe maybe that's truer for a New maybe. Yorker than for me. True, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you know, this us two weird, you know, funny little Hoosier boys. Yeah, you know, like, who were thousands. Of, well, not that, maybe not thousands, but hundreds of miles away. And, and I did not watch like news nonstop after it necessarily. No. So no, but it was hard to get away from it well, for okay. a long time. Yeah. But one more point from Stone that I do think is related to this and some of the other things we talked about. Quote, if the film dwelled on the ideological complexities of 9-11, which is what I was trying to get away from, because Quagmire, our experience might be completely ruined. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting thought. Sounds a little bit like how you should keep your agenda out (laughs) of the story. Yes. Maybe. And so instead of Al-Qaeda, we are offered a monster. Unlike terrorists, monsters are not driven by ideology. Well, most of them anyway. Well, yeah. We do not have to think about why the monster wreaks destruction. It just does. Mm-hmm. Its violence is, quote-unquote, senseless, a term favored by many a media pundit unwilling to confront the root causes of the attacks, end quote. Oh, interesting. That was just a gauntlet thrown down right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get but, crap like that from Jimmy every day at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think that is interesting, and this, it was the same way for the original Godzilla as well. That the Americans are never named. Yeah, but it's all but inferred. 
that that's exactly what's going on. Godzilla was is the Americans' problem know, because they were the ones doing the tests. Now, here's my question, say, comparing Godzilla and Cloverfield. Godzilla seems a much more direct analogy. Yes. I don't know, analogy. But it seems, Cloverfield seems to me, just because it, it is, I guess, less, I don't know. Less direct. Less direct, less dense, even than the original Godzilla as far yeah. as symbolism and stuff. Is Cloverfield really trying to be an analogy, or is it just tapping into the zeitgeist of that's what the next essayist actually See, got i into. lean towards more the zeitgeist it is the, i would agree with you it's much more the zeitgeist but like I mean, so that's what the next essayist guy, gets uh, into. stone i don't know if it's a guy or girl but anyways has some interesting points but i think it might be overplaying i would agree with you this was the one of the two that i thought i think you're getting a little going a little far into it. and there are some other passages so I, that i don't have here that i haven't read on the air yeah that went further into it, I thought were a little more cynical than they needed to be. Almost to the point where it seemed like the SAS kind of hated the movie, almost. Well, from what you've read so far, it seems not so much that as much as she used the movie, or he, I don't know, used the movie as a jumping-off point for certain thoughts that she had that the movie doesn't quite... You know, it's like a reader response almost to the movie versus like an actual, like, what the movie actually can support. Yeah. But the next essayist, his name was Hentke, okay. if I said that right, delves into that a little bit as well. He he looks at a lot of the same things as Stone, but from a different angle. Yeah. We'll say that. He said, quote, though the film has little to offer in terms of authoritative statements. Okay, true, I would agree with that. And thus never attempts to integrate viewers into a community of knowledge. Community of knowledge. You, know, you got to love those scholars <laughs> and the funny terms they like to coin. It goes to great lengths to make up for this lack by offering what one might call, quote, I like this one, okay. a communal experience of experience. Okay. End quote. Have you seen Dunkirk? Yes. Okay. I watched Dunkirk, and I felt like I didn't know anything more about Dunkirk, but I had experienced... The event. The event. and Or part of the event. It is a weird movie, but... A weird setup. movie about a very interesting historical but, but event. But it's not really a historical movie. It's more just an experience of the event. Yes. And I feel like Cloverfield's very much, I mean, it's different in lots of ways, but in the sense that Cloverfield's almost more an event than trying to say much. I mean, it's more, it has more than, I think it has more meaning. Well, than this guy has, goes I'm on I'm agreeing talking. with this. Yeah. yeah. Hentke actually, that was kind of early on in the essay, and then that was a little bit of his preamble to talk about how Despite that, there are things that you can see in the movie that reveal yeah. what it's, I guess you could say, ideology is. Okay. Let's, okay. If you pay attention to it. Interestingly, Clover, the monster, yeah. represents the mysterious forces attacking New York for unknown reasons. Okay. Now, at the moment, that's the, that's true. Yeah. When it was happening, nobody knew what the exactly. heck was going it, on. It's nobody knew that it was terrorists, that they were hijacked planes. Nobody, they were just in the moment dealing with everything. Yeah, it's a very existential movie. Yeah. It's less about what happened historically, so, you know, the historical event of 9-11, and more about how it felt. I would think this guy's much closer. Yeah, so helplessness, powerlessness, victimization. Mm -hmm. Again, also, like, Godzilla 54. Yeah. The found footage aesthetic emphasizes experience over narrative. That's his argument in this regard. I would agree with that, actually. I I think that's the whole, because in some ways, the media is the message. Yeah. 
in a lot of ways, which yeah. again, will which I think if I remember, I think that's some of the highlights I have in here. So this was just a fascinating point that he brought up. Quote, Cloverfield does not need to allegorize its subject matter because the historical events to which it so unambiguously alludes, the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, already come with all the trappings of allegory. Hmm. Hold that thought. The attack on the World Trade Center on 9-11 constituted an attack not on the buildings or the people in them, but on the buildings and the people in them as a compound symbol of the United States of America, perfectly attuned to the representational logic of terrorism Cloverfield functions as a fictional realist representation of a fully allegorized historical event. Instead of engaging in an argument, it merely illustrates the obvious. End quote. That's a really clever sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. I love that. So that's when you stop and think about it, that is the whole point of terrorism, is it not? It's It's not necessarily to do actual meaningful damage. We'll say that. It's not to do meaningful damage. Yeah. It's to do symbolic damage. It's to do symbolic damage. We hurt something that represents who you are. Yeah. And not caring how much they hurt actually in the process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it's just like, because when I was a kid, right at, not long after the the attacks, my family visited Washington, D.C. I got to see the Pentagon with the big hole in Mm -hmm. it. Here's the thing. Pentagon's a big building. It's a big building. I just now, and that was it. a secondary target. It was supposed to be the White House. Yeah. Now, you take an airplane to the White House, good Lord. Sometimes I think about that alternate universe. Good grief. Well, there, you know, before this, there was a Tom Clancy novel where an airplane was flown to the Capitol. Yeah. That's terrifying. I, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. That was a secondary target for a reason. You're not going to hurt the... Nothing short of a small nuclear bomb is going to take out the Pentagon. Yeah, one airplane's not going to do anything, all right. But it was the fact that they hit the Pentagon. Exactly. Yeah, that's the point. Mm-hmm. We hit the thing that represents you. Yeah, that's what makes it terrifying because there's no way that they were going to defeat us militarily in a traditional war. We'll say in a head-on a head and a head-on like invasion. There's no way yeah. you can do that. But you can terrify people and make them so afraid to just go out the door. Yeah, for fear that somebody's going to blow something up. Mm-hmm. You know, every unknown package in the mail is a bomb. Yeah. You know, that sort of a thing. You make people live in fear, you cripple them. They won't be, they won't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. That was the point. So it's already an allegorical attack. I love this concept. It's interesting. Just go back to our unheroic hero then. Yeah. He's not crippled. No. By fear. Not by fear. Well, I mean, I mean, he could have been, but he decides not to be. Yes. Anyways. Keep he's going. still he's doing it afraid. Yeah. He's doing it afraid. But going back to what we were hinting at it, the found footage motif plays into another post 9/11 concern, private versus public life. Mm-hmm. The public disaster impinges on the private life recorded on the camera. Mm-hmm. The public unveiling of this footage can be seen as a form of transcendence, especially with how voyeuristic it is. Like that first scene of the movie, we're not, we were never meant to see that. Yeah. Yep. You know, this morning after scene, these two young people. And then even. You're having breakfast in bed together. And then even, I mean, that's the most private. And then even the party is more private 
than public. Yeah. And then it just goes straight into like, yeah. Yeah, so there's that, but then the whole point is that like all the stuff is being erased. But it was no, I know, it's I know that's the main one. Again, the you know, trauma I'm trumps just, you know. I'm, I'm just saying there's two layers. There's a super private one that got erased and he's like, Oh no, I had a tape in there. Yeah. And then there's like just normal like Normal stuff. Normal stuff. And then it's completely and then, interrupted yeah. and usurped by Both the crazy public disaster. Both the private and the normal public. Yeah. 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 The question is, is this film reopening an old wound or is it the end of the discourse on the trauma? Henke argues it's more interested in profits than catharsis because of its conventionality, although he admits it skirts that line. Because yeah. there's some unconventionality that only appealed to, you know, weirdo artsy. Yeah. You know, art house film people, but it also is, it's still a Hollywood movie. Yeah, it's still yeah, very it's still conventional just, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. He goes on to say a disavows political instrumentalization of the event by privileging the private over the public. Yeah. It's, yeah because it's, ultimately, it's not about, we talked about, it, it's not about Clover and the massive disaster. It's, it's about, a very personal story. It's just a very personal story amidst a big, crazy thing. I mean, in almost every big movie like that, you have. A scientist or a politician or a doctor, and there's none of that. There's none of these. We see positions. soldiers, but, but they're no but these... they're but they're almost background characters. Yeah, there's no position. Of, there's no person running around with a position of authority. No, it's not like character. the 1950s movie where there that was the whole point. And that yeah. some of the other portions of these essays talked about that. There's none of that. We talked about how it adheres to a lot of the 1950s tropes and, and its tone, yeah. but it doesn't use all the tropes. Because it, I've talked about how it's like Godzilla, but it also eschews a lot of that because we don't have reporters and scientists and military and people. And if you had had reporters or scientists or military people or politicians, maybe they would have been vague or, over, or stereotyped, but they still would have given a political view of it. Yeah, and... But that, mo- that movie does exist. It's called Shin Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, actually, in some ways, Shin Godzilla is kind of Japanese Cloverfield with politicians. Yeah. Uh, it, you'll have to see it. Sometime. I still got to yeah, see it. Yeah. Well, we'll work on that. That'll be remedied soon, I hope. So, a couple more quotations yep. here, a couple more bullet points I want to discuss from these essays. Quote Cloverfield is all about exploring and exploiting the experiences of victimization. I would say the same thing of yeah. Godzilla 54, though. Neither does it provide comforting 1950s-style yeah. visions of disciplined public responses to large-scale catastrophe. <laughs> no. Nor 1950s-style figures of institutional authority. It's mm-hmm. like you read ahead. <laughs> Setting things straight. It does not grant its characters a clear sense of agency. Its love stories, a happy ending or a clear sense of closure that retroactively makes all the bloodshed worth it. Mm -hmm. That's true. In all of these instances of carefully constructed neutrality, Cloverfield could not be more different from the mentality of most 1950s giant creature films. End quote. It's like, we again, we read ahead. We already talked about that point. (laughs) But, you know, it goes back to... I guess I should start writing academic essays. Yeah, maybe you should. (laughs) It just goes back to, you know, we talked about, you know, the, the, you know, the, the fear that mm-hmm. was running rampant you know, immediately after all yeah. of this. because And it didn't feel like things could be set straight. Yeah. So this is from the from Pew. Quote, fear was widespread, not just in the days immediately after the attacks, but throughout the fall of 2001. 
Most Americans said they were very, 20%, or somewhat, 40%, worried about another attack. Mm -hmm. When asked a year later to describe how their lives changed in a major way, about half of adults said they felt more afraid, more careful, more distrustful, or more vulnerable as a result of the attacks, end quote. So it plays into that, because we didn't have that closure when that was going on. People didn't get that, again naturalistic right yeah because that's a very hollywood that's a very story thing to do you wrap things up all nice yep yeah so one final bullet point here from henke he said given the political divisiveness of 9-11 the film instead focuses on the nostalgia this is an interesting thought of the trauma of the event with a sensual assault and quote-unquote strange apathy end quote Hmm. This it's just all- so weird, the idea of being nostalgic for trauma. I mean, yeah. I know nostalgia by definition involves a sense of pain and loss because that's what nostalgia means. It means basically painful remembrance. Yeah. It's like, oh, I remember that. It was fun. And it's not like but, it is now. But we always talk about the whole, like, you knew where you were, were JFK. Yeah, which they talked about. You know, that. That, that, that idea. I don't know. If, I don't know if what phrases nostalgia for trauma, but I think it's that idea, at least that. We were all there, and we all remember it, and it made an imp- deep impression. And it's shared. I mean, it's shared. It's a yeah, shared, it, it's shared and experience. There, and as weird as it is, there are very few. I feel like at least in the United States, very few shared experiences. Not anymore. anymore. Yeah, not anymore. Whether positive or negative, and it seems like more often than not, it has to be something negative. <laughs> I mean, if anything yeah. good came out of COVID land. It was that we all had to share it. Yep. It wasn't just the United States. It was just one country. It was the whole world. Yeah. We all had to deal with that madness. Yep. It's all something we're all going to... We'll be able to just bring up, hey, remember COVID? Remember 2020? And we'll all be able to talk about it. Yep. We all had a shared experience from that. But the idea that we're all going to look back on it nostalgically... Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't Italy, know. That's a weird concept. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that word. I'm. I'm not sure. I would completely agree with the word itself. I like the idea. But. Yeah, because I tend to think of nostalgia as being positive in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Now the pain comes from wishing it was still like that. Which you don't. I mean, you don't go back and wish it was still like that. I don't think. Well, and nostalgia can be remembering something from your own life or just wishing you would you lived in earlier times. Yeah. You know, feeling nostalgic for a bygone era. Yeah. You know, I wish I could have grown up in, I don't know, the 1940s. Yeah. Or something like that, you know, and gone through World War II. I don't know why you would want to do that, but, <laughs> you know, or going through the, you know, live, uh, you know, growing up in the 1950s, you yeah, know, because yeah. people look back on the 50s as being this idyllic time. Newsflash, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, or people will, you know, I, I've been guilty of this, being nostalgic and wishing that I could have lived in medieval Europe and been a knight. But, you know, I think we all would find out very quickly if we did travel back in time and try to fun. experience that. I don't think we would last very long because we're a little too used to our modern creature yeah. comforts. Yeah. We take all those for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, so something would spoil it, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I think you're right. But, you know, that's different than this, you know, being nostalgic for your trauma. It just seems weird. But I guess that goes back to that you know, masochistic yeah. bent that one, of the, uh, that one of the essayists was talking about. Well, I wonder if it's, and I'm, I may be misunderstanding it, but, you know, sometimes people prefer the disaster they know than the thing they, the change they don't. <laughs> Better the devil you know. I mean, because, like, some people, like, for instance, I remember 
we're uh, listening to this podcast about homelessness and this person coming out. And like, sometimes homeless people would rather stay homeless with the people they're comfortable with than the scariness of being out of having a house and not being with the community they've been hanging out homeless with. And maybe some, some sort of thing like that. Like it was a time that, I don't know, we at least knew it, even if it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's what, I it don't is. know what that's what he's saying. I'm confused without yeah. more context, but yeah, I'm still a little bit confused by, it. I guess it just doesn't make sense. I mean, unless you I, could draw some sort of pot, you know, some positives out of the trauma. I don't see the point of reliving it, but again, I guess that's that psychological thing. You have to relive it to process it. Well, and then maybe I haven't read the whole essay. Maybe his, his cycle, his version of psychology and some presuppositions are different than mine too. Very possible. So very possible. But listeners, if you have any thoughts on this matter, feel free to write us in. I would love to hear about this. Tell us a little bit about what you think. What's your interpretation of this? Let us know. Also, feel free to check the show notes to find all of my references so you can read these essays as well. All right. For a final soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I feel like I feel compelled to say that at this point in the the podcast. Go listen to Derail Trains of Thought, people. Anyway, I'm going to go through some listener feedback. That's a a segment on your That is. We do it earlier. Yeah. Well, yes, you do. And I like saving it for the end. Yes. Go for it. But anyway, I'm continuing with the very involved conversations I had with Neil Reeby, who has appeared on the show. And is a fellow writer as well. He's had this streak where he would listen to episodes and then he would send me Facebook messenger messages as he's listening, giving me feedback. So we're continuing some more of those. It's interesting. You and John touched on the issue. He's talking about the them episode. Touched on the issue of how conventional weapons can kill American giant monsters, but not Japanese monsters. In my opinion, many of the people who were involved in making the 50s monster movie served in World War II. For the Japanese, the U.S. military was indestructible. Their tanks could not knock out our tanks, and ours could knock out theirs. Our planes could shred their planes while theirs, unless the pilot was persistent and a good shot, could not shoot down ours. In a way, in my opinion, the monsters represent the enemy armies of the war. Hmm. This is a fascinating thought. We were able to blow up our enemies with relative ease, so our monsters could be blown up with our guns as well. Even the amount of property damage, I think, reflects wartime experience. American giant monsters don't do much property damage, at least in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. It usually usually wasn't wide scale. There were some that were. Just like not much of America was damaged by enemy bombs. Although there was a lot of fear of that. Yeah. For sure. That's why they had blackouts across the coast. While Japan lost entire cities to our bombs. Hence, their monsters wipe out entire cities. The consequence of all this was that as a kid, I loved American giant monster movies, but I loved the Japanese ones even more. When a Japanese monster movie was going to be shown, for me, it was a major event. Yes, I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I also only have a landline telephone. I'm thoroughly 20th century. (laughs) But that was something that John and I talked about. And I do think it does go back to wartime. I think it was most films, most stories being written at the time were definitely informed by wartime experience. And I think it does illustrate those differences. 
whether you're on the side dealing the damage or receiving it, I do think that has a very different effect on you. Mm -hmm. So, but like I said, there's a lot of things that go into how each country presents their monsters in their movies. They represent different things because it's two different countries, two different cultures dealing with different anxieties. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. Okay. Well, now, Mr. Hayden. Yes. We're getting to a very exciting t point in the show. The Patreon shout-outs! Travis Alexander! Danny Tamara! Eli Harris! Chris Cook! Damon Noyce. Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Eric Anderson. Ted Williams. Tofu Fury. Glee. I want to go Cobra Kai over everything I see right now. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen Cobra Kai? <laughs> uh, some of it. My wife's seen all of it. She loves it. Zach loves it. Uh, as you should. <laughs> uh, it's usually the most invigorating segment of the show, <laughs> as you can tell. Yeah. Especially Tofu Fury. We know who Tofu we know Fury Tofu is, Fury. but he's always going to be Tofu Fury. <laughs> I want him to make that movie, I keep joking, that his username needs to be. <laughs> so uh, we need a ninja chef. Tofu Fury. If you can get Jackie Chan to do it, it would be even better. Yeah. Because it sounds like a very Jackie Chan movie. It does. It, does. <laughs> it really, really does. But anyway, now I'm going to let everybody know what we have coming up in the next couple yes. of episodes. We're finally slowing down a little bit. We had some bonus episodes in June, and we were busy. We were very, very busy here with doing our first Harryhausen annual with my friend Elijah, and then doing the bonus episode on Beware the Blob, which I showed you a little bit of yes. before we watched Cloverfield, yes, and you were as confused as yeah. I was. I, yes. I will never again go to hair stylist, hair artist. <laughs> sculptor. Sculptor, sculptor. <laughs> yes. Sculptor. My hair needs sculpted. Yeah, for $400. Oh, yeah, I keep it in this pocket and my other pocket. Just <laughs> random cash. <laughs> That movie. Oh, that movie. Anyway, Godzilla Redux. We're getting back to that. We had a Patreon sponsored episode. MIFE Max sponsored episode last month. Now we're going to get to Godzilla Redux again, like I said, with Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, the second of two Godzilla films released in the same year, hmm. 1964. And I will have on not one, but two Jack and Eddie brothers for this one. Returning to the podcast will be Luke of the Earth Destruction Directive, among other things. And I am now bringing his brother, Jason, the host of Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Do I do it as well as you, Jason? Please let me know if I do. Because <laughs> that's pretty close to how he says it. <laughs> and I'm having them on because I think it was it's among both of their favorites. They grew up watching it, so... Can't wait to have them on. It should be fun. Those two are a hoot. <laughs> so looking forward to that. And then the next episode of America Kaiju. I am beyond excited about this. This is your movie. This is a movie. I, I need to show you this. I really do think you'll get a kick out of it. I will die on the hill that it is one, of, even though it 
underperformed at the box office in the United States. I will die on the hill that it is one of the best blockbusters of the last 10 years because it's original has one of the best soundtracks of any film in the last 10 years. Pacific Rim. My gosh, I have been waiting <laughs> very eagerly to have this on the show. I am so excited. And as you can tell, so is my producer because robots. Robots. He's got a thing for robots. You're going to marry a robot, aren't you? You weirdo. But anyway... Yes, Pacific Rim, and I could think of nobody better because I'm going to go crazy on that one. We're going to have, hopefully, a minimum of three guests for that one. The Drifters from the Drift Space podcast. I had to. They love the movie, and it's where the title of their show came from. But returning to the podcast will be Jack G-Man Hudgens and J.R. Villers, both of whom have been on the show before, like I said, and appearing for the first time will be Jack's sister, Rebecca. And I'm hoping to get their friend Dave, who is the fourth co-host on The Drift Space. That I'm a little less certain about, but the very least, you're going to have those three on. It's going to be fun, or it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. I'm not sure yet, because that's a lot of people. I've had five guests on the show before, Hashtag herding cats. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Apparently they have their own Jaeger. They're going to be flying here in their own Jaeger. I'll be very nice. curious to see this particular Jaeger. I have never seen a model that required four people. Hmm. <laughs> they normally take two. There was one that had three. So this is going to be a wee bit unusual, to say the least. Say the least. But now, Mr. Hayden, yes. we come to quite possibly the most important segment of the show, which is where the guests do their shameless self-promotion. So, really quick, yes, all y'all, and I can say that because I'm from Indiana, all y'all need to go listen to my spinoff podcast, Henshin Men, a podcast about the appreciation of Japanese superheroes and their high-flying and eye-kicking adventures, and The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise, which I host with my co-host in common, Travis Alexander, and Michael Hamilton. I'm done. Well, all I have to say is I'm co-host of the Derailed Trains of Thought podcast, where we talk about storytelling for the creator and the consumer. I, I can't, the tagline. I, I, tag I, I can't insert tagline. I can't. I can't say this without my co-host. This is weird. <laughs> I'm not a solo podcaster. Um, <laughs> but it was our website. We have a derailedtrainsofthought.com. Our main podcast, we talk about storytelling of all types for all people. We have a instant reaction podcast called The Weekly Hijack. Talks mainly about Lost and Babylon Five, but some other stuff. And <laughs> once upon a time, once upon a time, the little Doctor Who. The once upon a times ones are the best ones. <laughs> just to hear all your, over the place. Just to hear your brother. Just break. To hear my, oh, it's so great! It's wonderful. And then coming up with some newer podcasts coming out. I don't know, a couple months from now. So movie. The next one coming out will be movie related though, so mm -hmm. people might like it. If they like this one. You can always invite Jimmy and I on. We'd love to That's come true. on. I miss being on Derail Trains of Thought. Yeah, we You guys come to... on my show all the time. I mean Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to get we'll try to ramp up for more guests again. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you let everybody know you have an author website. I do have an author website, I guess. Yeah, I haven't published much as far as novels lately and some of this in transition, but worksofnick.com 
mainly there are my voluminous number of flesh fictions that I keep adding to uh, 160 uh, Hey, plus. I'll let you know, I have convinced the librarian here at the Sekizawa Library to put your books in the collection. Oh, nice. You're welcome. Nice. Oh, very nice. Good. Anyways, so that is my shameless self-promotion for now with mm-hmm. only a little bit of shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, just to you know, make it related to the show, because I've talked about this book before. You did make a little contribution to my kaiju novella. Your wife made a bigger contribution. Yes, yes she did. But you made a tie-in short story that went completely different places. It was a fun short story. And Depressing if and, when, and if and when the sequel gets made, I will be... It is canon. It, it, well, it's already canon. Yeah, I but I will be building off of some of the things yeah. that were in that short story. No, Destroyer is a, lot, is a lot of fun. If you have not read it, guys, you should go get it. It was back during your house phase. Yes, my house phase. <laughs> you kept writing short stories and about it, houses. And, and all these people, even though they're all kaiju fans, you go read Sorzum. Yes, Zorzum, because there are monsters. There are monsters. There are monsters in there. If you like sword and sorcery, it's sword a, and it's, sandal, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, good. I mean, like, what? The, the opening scene of that book is literally our barbarian bursting out of a dinosaur. Yeah, it's is pretty great. It is? It's, it's pretty great. It's he, pretty got, great. He, he was swallowed by a dinosaur, and he just, like, cut his way out of it. It's gross and glorious. Yeah, so, yeah, Nathan and I co-authored that with another of our friends. Aaron has and not Brian been on this, right? No, he hasn't. Okay. Sometimes I think I should have Aaron on the show. There's certain shows, there are movies that he might be a lot of fun to have on. Yes. Yes, he would. Yeah. Yes, he would. I'll talk to him. Yeah. My people will talk to his people. <laughs> yes, you're my people. Make it happen. Uh, hmm. Anything else? No, that'll work for now. Uh, that's all you've got? That's all I've got. That's all you've got. All right. Well, then, since that's all you've got, <laughs> shut up, Jimmy. I know I'm running the joke into the ground. Don't ruin this for me. Anyway, speaking of which, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! Talk fast, Jess. I'm at Mr. Gold's office about to have a meeting with him. Now is not a good time to confess something to me. 
Reverend Mafune said you had to. Okay, fine. What is it? What? Are you kidding me? Jess, you and Danny orchestrated the Emir's escape on Harryhausen's birthday? That explains why you were late getting to my birthday party. I agree winter caging and displaying him was beyond cruel and unusual, and as much as I want to stick it to the a-hole, that was... Good afternoon, Mr. Machan. <sighs> we'll talk at dinner, Jess. Bickering with your sister again, I see. Pseudo-sister, but yes, what else is new? Ah, I see. I do know a thing or three about having younger sisters. My sister Sylvia would always have to tag along when I went on my hunting trips with our daddy. She had this crazy notion as a child that she could bag anything I could and bag it better and bigger. Could she? Well, let's just say when I shot that giant gila monster down in Texas, Sylvia turned right around, went down to Mexico, and shot herself a black scorpion. Well, dang. Speaking of your sister, a little birdie told me she helped direct the Ymir back into the jungle after the Gauss sliced off that big critter's cage bars. Do you know anything about that, Mr. Machan? She was just trying to keep everyone safe, including the Ymir himself. And I have no doubt about that. And I commend her efforts. But doesn't it seem a bit... We'll say odd that a Gauss escaped the Avery again, but instead of indulging its natural carnivorous appetite, it attacks the Ymir and flies away without so much as a nibble. I find that to be a little strange. Well, Crystal Lady's little moth friend was shooting at the Gauss with antenna lasers. Even Godzilla flinches a bit from giant moth beams. And you're absolutely right, Mr. Machan, but all that Gauss did while that little critter was chasing it was fly a few miles, perch on a mountainside, and wait there until Ozaki and the mutants came and captured it. To me, it seems a little too easy. Given the Gauss's track record for eating people, including, you know, a little incident where he purportedly ate somebody, this sounds like grounds for celebration to me. And you would be absolutely right under normal circumstances. But Mr. Winter told me he noticed some unusual transmissions when all that happened. I mean, I was doing a special broadcast with Elijah Thomas about Ray Harryhausen, and I call him the littlest gatekeeper for no, a reason. No, 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 uh, Mr. Machan. That wasn't it at all. In fact... We have, under good authority, that was an Orca signal. The Orca? Yes, the device created by Dr. Emma Russell. From what we hear, it can't control kaiju, but it can command them. You're not wrong. And last I heard, it was being stored in your producer's garage. Am I correct in hearing that? Last I heard... Yeah? Ah, well, much like my last kill, that's a mighty big coincidence. 
that there was a breach in the aviary security at the same time as this mysterious orca transmission? Indeed. Might want to call the legal action team and have them send Inspector Osako to investigate. You know what? That does sound like a mighty fine idea. And you know what else sounds like a mighty fine idea, Mr. Machan? What's that? A drink. Would you care for one? I did. It's a little too early in the day still, but thanks. All right. Would you care for a cigar, Mr. Monchan? No, thanks. I don't smoke. Mm, smart man. That's why you have such a beautiful complexion. All that clean living and all. All right. You can stop pouring it on thicker than the icing on my birthday cake. I'm guessing you asked me here to talk about the job offer. Sharp as a whip as always. Now, let's get down to brass tacks, or in my case, gold tacks. <laughs> that there packet has the media master's job description along with the layout of your brand spanking new office. Hold the phone. This is Miss Perkins, I mean, Corone's office. Damn straight. The media master will be handling a lot of the PR for the island, so it was only appropriate. It's just... Wow. Windows overlooking the island? Enough space to house a kaiju? I'll just need a day or two to get over it being the room where a former supervillainess electrocuted me. Well, according to your power trip co-host, he believed that you would enjoy it. I'm not dignifying that with a response so I can see the salary and... What the fudge? That's... That's a lot of zeros. You sure this isn't a typo? No, sirree. I drew that contract up myself, Mr. Machan. I've seen your tweets for the board, so I'm even more doubtful. <laughs> I assure you, Mr. Marchand, that is all correct. Mr. Winter has an eye for talent. <laughs> Why do you think he has me here? And he only hires the best. Consider this our monetary apology for the mismanagement this island has experienced the last few years. I'm... I'm flattered. Well, what do you say, Media Master Nate? It does have a nice ring to it now, doesn't it? I say... Uh, yes? Fantastic, Mr. Marchand. Now, how about I take you down to Burt's and we can celebrate over some USDA Prime and discuss the new terms of your agreement? Uh, sure, I've been meaning to check that place out for a while kind of interesting that some people decided to start a kaiju-themed steakhouse chain in honor of Burt Gummer. Alright, sounds great. Miss Kawhi, will you please hold all my calls until I get back? Yes. <laughs>